Uh, just one more quick note before we get started. I happen to be thinking about it. Uh, thank all of you that had attended our auction last night. It was a very fun time. My voice held out, which was very impressive. And uh, I, I believe talking to Rick, as far as we know, that was the first auction that combined the online auction uh, folks with the people in the room. So, hey, give yourselves a hand for that. And here at RSVA, we so appreciate your donation. So thank you so much. All right, Madam Cruise Director, are you ready to get started? I believe so. Um, good morning, everybody. And uh, I believe artists uh, indicated that we have a couple of um, housekeeping things to do before uh, I start running my mouth. I believe we have a code and um, some door prizes. Yes, we do. I'm, I'm sure everybody's waiting, right? <laughs> who, would, who, who wouldn't like some door prizes? We're going to do our codes and then maybe some door prizes? Sounds good. Okay, our beginning code for this morning is D as in dog, 444N as in Nancy. Again, that's D as in dog, 444Nancy. Okay, um, we'll do a couple door prizes. Um, the first one I have is John Hester. Oh, I think we've got one in the room here. Okay, great, great. Um, the next one is Alan Horde. Alan Horde, are you online or in the room? Not in the room. Okay. Don't see him online. Okay, Chris Ingram. Chris Ingram? I don't believe he's here. Okay. Uh, Cynthia Lee. Not in the room. Okay. Rex Morris. Yeah, doesn't appear to be in the room. Well, there's a Rex here online. And I think he was an online participant. Um, I can't imagine there's a whole lot of Rexes attending. <laughs> I'm online. Okay, great. We gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations, Rex. Thank you, sir. Go for it, Linda. Okay, well, given my useless uh, propensity towards uh, trivia, if anybody cares, the, uh, the name Rex means king, and Ryan is little king. Just saying. So, um, this first, uh, first, uh, event this morning is moving past the bureaucracy to get things moving and uh, our two guests are Alan Risk from Florida and Karen Blachowicz from New York and um, uh, if, if uh, 
everyone's okay with it. I, w I would prefer for the humans to uh, uh, give their credentials themselves so that I don't risk leaving something else that's important. So, um, are, are both of our attendees or presenters here? Alan's here. I do not see Karen. Okay. Well, I guess, um, Scott, is it okay to go ahead and let Alan uh, yes, introduce himself? Yes, it is. Yep. Uh, okay. All right, Alan, if you would please, sir. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yep, can well, hear you great. Well, my official uh, capacity with the Florida uh, Business Enterprise Program is as compliance officer. And just to wrap everything up, whether it's state, federal, local laws, even our own policies and procedures, uh, my job is to make sure that we're abiding by all that in compliance. Uh, which brings to mind, uh, we have a pretty good contingent out there. I believe we have 10 vendors, along with our regional consultant, Bernie Kassarian. And I just wanted to make sure you all could help me with this, that they're abiding by our, our curfew policy. Uh, for those at that policy that attend this thing, they're all supposed to be uh, abiding by a curfew of 11 p.m. Now that's Eastern time, which means Pacific time, that's 8 p.m. And uh, just to make sure that everyone's abiding by that, we've asked Bernie to go by and do a bed check tonight uh, to make sure that all of our vendors are in by the curfew time. So just kind of giving you a heads up and a little warning. There. Kevin Williams. We're all set, Alan. Okay, you ready for me to go ahead and start? Yes, sir. All right. Well, the, the topic, uh, from what I understand, and if Karen joins us, let, let me know, and I'll stop talking so that she can uh, get in. But uh, it's uh, on how to move past bureauc bureaucracy to get things done. And we're supposed to uh, cite instances where uh, the, our, our BEP managers and our staff have worked together to move things forward uh, quickly and responsibly. And the thing that came to my mind, I was speaking with Randall Crosby uh, on this, and uh, he brought up the idea of when we got the FRRP funds, the financial relief and restoration payments a couple of years ago. And all of that came about, I was at the sagebrush in 2020, in February of 2020. And while we were there, those of you that were there may remember that's when we first started hearing stories about what was going on over in China with the multitudes of people dying from this virus. And it wasn't a month later before it was all across the United States. And uh, we all know what that did to our programs, with our facilities, with our vendors, uh, and just really uh, a devastating effect uh, financially as well as physically on our programs. And then uh, in December of that year, we heard about Congress passing a $20 million appropriations bill uh, to help to provide some relief to the BEP programs across the nation to the vendors. And uh, in January, we found out that our program, the Florida program, would be awarded uh, almost $1.4 million, one million three hundred and $82,000 to be distributed among our vendors. And RSA reminded us at that time uh, that we were required to uh, keep the, the state committee, the elected committee of vendors 
actively involved in this, active participation, that was the key. And we did that, and between our bureau chief, Bill Finley, and our, our chairman, Jim Worth, of our, our vendors, they put together a committee, a committee of five individuals, two from the SLA and three from the, from the vendors, and they kind of headed it up. One of the individuals on that panel, one of our vendors, was very uh, good with numbers, and, and uh, so we worked together, that panel worked together. They met several times. Over the next three months, they met no less than, than five times virtually. They also held a public forum with all the vendors involved in it. They also addressed the state committee uh, of vendors twice. And, uh, and in Florida, we have an open government uh, policy where all of our meetings, uh, even the virtual meetings with, the, with this subcommittee, were open to the public. And so we, we had vendors that were uh, on those calls and a lot of questions came up and we went through it uh, over and over a lot of hours, a lot of hours involved in this. Uh, I know my, myself personally, I was responsible for putting together a lot of the spreadsheets with the data and from where we started to where we got to the very end, there was a total of 35 different spreadsheets that I had put together in those three months. Uh, but uh, what they finally on April 21st, just three months after we had put this panel together, we brought it before the state committee. We had gone through different formulas, different criteria, uh, who was eligible, who was not eligible, all the things that we looked at, including uh, grant funds that they may have received, uh, surveys that we're giving, um, letters of attestation that the vendors had to sign. There was a lot involved in this and it, it really took the, the committee, the vendors working together with the agency to keep this thing moving. We didn't want it just to sit on, sit on this for a while and see what everyone else was doing. We wanted to go ahead and move this forward. Our vendors were hurting. Uh, they needed relief yesterday. They, they needed that financial relief and uh, we did everything that we could to keep this moving. On April 21st, our final uh, recommendation to the state committee and, and of course the, the entire vendor community was aware of what we were doing it passed uh, unanimously among the committee of vendors. And then uh, within just a few weeks, we had all of the, the, uh, the vendors were notified what their payment was gonna be. And by the end of May, all of our vendors, especially those that had direct deposit, uh, their money was in the bank. It was in their account. Those that were not on direct deposit uh, were mailed their checks. And uh, we worked through that really because of, of active participation. And kind of to give a uh, kind of a nod to Jim Worth, I know he's there not to make his head too big or anything there, but uh, one thing that Jim has done that has really benefited uh, our program is to get a lot of people involved. Uh, not just uh, the chair, vice chair, not just the district reps and, and assistant reps, but all of the vendor community. He, he would assign people with certain responsibilities assign them to certain communities, uh, certain subcommittees, I should say. And uh, because there's so much involvement, everyone has a voice uh, among the vendor community. And that active participation working alongside with the SLA, and again, with our bureau chief, Bill Finley, he keeps us all involved in that. And Bernie Kassarian right there in, in attendance at Sagebrush, he was on that five member panel for, for this uh, FRRP funds. And by getting the SLA and the, and the committee working hand in hand, uh, keeping each other accountable, 
uh, being honest, uh, committed to this uh, program, having this open communication, this this trust, and, and following through, and and uh, and making sure that we we kept everything on target. We were able to move everything through in a relatively short uh, period of time. We ended up at the end. Uh, you know, we never are able to recoup all of our losses, uh, but across the board, from the comparing the 2019 net profit of our vendors from for the months of March through December, which which is what we, the committee agreed to base it upon, March through December of uh, 2020 losses compared to what they would have earned in 2019, uh, and we had to take into account what facilities they were at. If they had changed facilities, we had to come up with a formula how to do all that. But they were able to recoup uh, through this FRP funds uh, almost 50%, 46.93% of their losses uh, were reimbursed to them. And so that's kind of a, a nod to how we worked together. Uh, we didn't let things uh, stall, but we, we kept moving until we got this done and, uh, and, and got it done fairly quickly considering uh, the, uh, the enormous task that we had before us. And with that, I guess I'll open it up to any, if anyone has any questions. Does anybody have any questions in the house here? I can run the mic out to you. Okay, I don't believe we have any. I have a question. Um, I'd, I'd like to just um, ask if, if um, other um, states had similar um, efforts when they got the money, if they worked together or if they were just, you know, told how much they'd get. And be interesting to hear on how other states handled uh, this particular issue um, using active participation. Yep. Okay, I got somebody coming up. Thanks, Scott. Yep. Good morning, everybody. Uh, ben from Michigan. Yeah, we, we had great uh, communication and teamwork between the Bureau and our EOC committee, and we, uh, our uh, retired chair, Rob Essenberg, was kind of like, uh, he and he was a numbers guy, so we, you know, we, of course, initially we started with, you know, any operator who had a loss uh, for the prior year um, was automatically, uh, and was still licensed and active at the time, uh, qualified. And then, yeah, we put together, um, basically we, we went, instead of like just dividing the money evenly, we did it by like what your income was, the size of your facility and whatnot. And so it was divided up by that. And I, I don't have, I don't know, I don't wanna put James on the spot, but we, we had a pretty high return percentage um, of uh, operators' losses for the previous year, but it went really smooth. I believe we were one of the first ones to actually, you know, have our um, have everything together and be able to present it to the feds in a timely manner. We things moved along really good, and we we had great communication. Yeah. Um, the 35 spreadsheet sounds very familiar, you know, but yeah, we were able to return our vendors to about 77% of their income from the previous year. We also, you know, because they were willing to actively work with us, from the time that the program was announced, we were able to distribute all funds to our operators by the middle of June. 
you know, so, uh, and that accounted for a 30 day period that we allowed our licensees to apply for the funds. So that was 30 days that sort of delayed it. We could have gotten it out even faster. So, uh, but it was a really a credit to the vendors putting together their, their thoughts, allowing us to, to put the numbers together and present it back to them and a, a great joint effort to get that money out because as it was said, licensees needed that money. They needed it yesterday. They couldn't wait for us all to haggle and argue and it really was efficient and effective. So um, I definitely encourage you guys to use that as an example going forward on other projects that you're working on. You know, engage your committee, think about it from that perspective and how much more efficient, effective and timely you can respond. Anybody else have? Uh, okay. Somebody behind me? There we go. Okay. Uh, Jim Swartz from Alaska. Yeah, the same thing happened in our state. We had great uh, participation with the SLA. Um, everything uh, worked out great and uh, got my money really quick. It was a really unique experience and it helped me out a lot because like most of us here, I was hurt quite a bit by the pandemic. All right, anyone else? That number's from Iowa. Do you have somebody on the other end here? Oh, come in, Randall. I don't think, uh, Matt, were you wanting to speak or just morning. letting us know you were here? Good morning, Alan. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to share Iowa's story. Hey, Alan, it's Randall Crosby. I just hey, want to let you know, uh, yeah, Bernie's doing really good on our curfew. We are a body met. Scott's going to sign off on that. He'll acknowledge that for us, I'm sure, hopefully. But real quick, uh, please do, Alan. I, I've heard you speak a couple times about, pro, you mentioned the proactive uh, participation or active participation. Could you elaborate a little on, you know, what you've learned and experienced with that? I've heard you talk about that a little bit. Don't want to put you on the spot, but a couple points maybe. Elaborate on that for the audience that may not be as familiar. Sure. Yeah, we, uh, we, the thing is with the active participation, I'm, I'm sure I'm not telling anybody that uh, anything you don't know, but in the past, they've, someone SLAs have looked at the elected committee of vendors more of it as an advisory board, and it's certainly not an advisory board there to be actively involved and it, it is for the benefit for both both of the vendors and for the SLA when we work together uh, on on a on coming up with a decision whatever that may be there's less likely to be uh, any uh, case against us grievances against us because the the committees have been actively and involved in that and, and working together help helps us to withstand any challenges to these policies, uh, these rules that we come up with, uh, the way that we distribute these these funds. And by the way, I would like to mention that we, uh, these funds out of the one point, almost 1.4 million, uh, all of every penny of that, except for $196 that we had left over after we figured it out between, and we're gonna remember we, we ended up with, we, we were at that time, we had around 120 vendors and we had to figure out who was eligible and who was not. All of it, except for $196, uh, was distributed to vendors, and that, that $196 went into the set-aside account to be used towards maintenance of equipment. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's just working together, 
uh, helps us when, when we're, and we're not always going to agree uh, on everything, but we're, we're both working together for the same purpose, uh, for the betterment of the program, betterment of our vendors. And even if we can disagree, we can disagree, disagree respectively and still work together and get things accomplished. And I think Matt had uh, wanted to share some numbers there, so I don't want to uh, butt into his time there. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, here in Iowa, we had a great success of working with the elected committee of blind vendors. And you know, thanks to the partnership, just like a lot of other states are expressing, uh, we were able to return roughly 98% of the funds that we received for FFR. FRRP back to the vendors. Um, for us, that meant the collaboration providing on average 88.3% of reimbursement of losses for the year to vendors. And at a minimum, it was 82.9% of uh, vendors' losses that we were able to rec recoup for each individual person. Um, three of them actually had over 90% of their losses uh, recuperated through that. If it hadn't been for the committee coming together and BEP staff taking the time to come up with this elaborate formula, um, it really could have been a nightmare, but I, I can't stress the importance of our committee being as proactive and responsive as they are. And I, I'm grateful to have them as partners getting through BEP together and stirring this program in a great direction. All right, anybody else in the room like to comment on the FRRP for their state? Oh, I've got a hand, I see. Microphone's coming. I got the mic. Aloha and good morning, everybody. Uh, like they said, together, united we stand, divided we fall. So with the SLA and the vendors together, we're able to get the much-needed financial assistance from the FRRP in Hawaii um, the Hawaii State Committee of Blind Vendors was able to uh, work with the SLA. They worked out a plan, submitted it to RSA, RSA approved, and uh, the SLA did all the accounting uh, with the losses on sales and inventory. Uh, the vendors were able to receive their uh, FRRP, which was a big help to the losses. In my personal uh, um, case, my store was closed for seven months in 2020. March 2020, my store closed and I opened November 2020. I received the FRRP I believe middle of 21. Thank you. Thank you. And a side note for you Hawaii folks, uh, I've got somebody from California who wants to meet up with you guys. So um, at break, if we can do that, that'd be great. Okay, anybody else? Yep. Here we go. Hey, uh, this is Jim from Washington. Appreciate everybody sharing. Um, we too, uh, I'm the SLA, we too met with our committee really early on, and uh, we've been hosting Zoom calls like Alan. Uh, you know, we, we were already doing training, so the Zoom and getting people on that platform already was in existence for about six or seven months. So as soon as we heard the news that the elected committee started hosting forums every, every week via Zoom to explain what the money was, 
We quickly developed the formula and uh, the criteria. A, a vendor in good standing. B, you know, you didn't have any outstanding federal warrants or anything like that. And uh, you were compliant with your P&L so we could actually uh, review the finances and make the decision. We got 100, we didn't, weren't as lucky as some of the other states. We only got 192,000, uh, but we had 16 vendors at the time and they chose to distribute it 16 ways equally because we wanted the maximum in everybody's hands. So that was phase one. Uh, the second one that I want to share with the collaboration was with the elected committee. At that time uh, in Washington, all of our locations except Fed sites pay rent for their facilities, and that was fairly substantial. And it took six months into COVID uh, to figure out what was going to happen. But we worked together to draft um, a proposal for the ledge uh, for rent relief. Uh, for the duration of the pandemic and beyond. So I'm happy to say that the vendors, because uh, I can't lobby, right, as an SLA, but you can. And we created a package and they successfully lobbied for rent relief for all of 20, all of 21. We finished 22 and we still have rent relief through June 30th of 23. And we have a package in the ledge today for permanent rent relief. And we have uh, two or three senators championing that through the ledge and it's sitting on the governor's desk. So we hope in Washington we'll be rent-free forever. Uh, but even if we don't, think, you know, the committee worked hard to get rent relief for four years at a time when uh, that would have been pretty bad news. I have one vendor, if he had had to pay rent for the three years he was closed, that would have been over 110,000 bucks. So can, I don't think anybody in this room would love to have that, that invoice to have to pay anytime soon. So uh, just another example of how that works. All right. Any other any other thoughts, comments on what your state went through for FRP? Okay, coming back. Here you go, Randall. Yeah, one last quick comment to Alan Risk on that curfew. By the way, just you know, we made an agreement here with Bernie though. When it's 11 p.m. here, it's 2 a.m. in Florida. Thank you. Yeah, uh, but your curfew is based on Eastern time, so it's 8 o'clock curfew time for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anybody else? I'd like to ask a question if it would be sure. okay. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. Um, and all of these wonderful testimonials, it's, it's great to hear, but my question is kind of hypothetical. Um, given that all of this was born out of such extraordinary circumstances, do you think that it's likely it will continue with the same momentum? Or uh, what, what's your prognostication on that? Well, I believe in Florida, I can't speak for other states, but I know in Florida we I believe we have one of the best uh, working relationships we've had. I've been with the uh, the bureau for 12 years, and uh, and we've had uh, we've had some some great committees, uh, great committee chairs in the past. Uh, but I believe, as far as working together, um, we are working together as well now as we ever have. Uh, we've overcome a lot of obstacles from years ago, where there was a great deal of distrust between uh, the agency and the vendors. Uh, but I think that uh, we're all on the same page, 
and again, it's, it comes back to that that respect and, and working together, and um, and so I think that we're going to continue on, on whatever the project may be. Uh, we're continuing on with basically the same game plan, working together, active participation, a lot of people involved, and it seems to be working well for us. Thank you. That's the, that's very reassuring. I, I love to hear that. Thank you. are we still open to more questions or do I don't we need to? I don't believe we have any more questions in the house no okay all right well uh, mr. risk thank you very much uh, thank for you your all. information okay thank you I hope you all enjoy the rest of the, the conference thank you okay uh, let's see our, our next uh, segment is entitled food trucks beat them or join them. Um, uh, my question is, uh, are, do we have our uh, participants in-house, uh, Mr. Martin and Mr. Hemmen? Yes, we do. Okay, perfect. So, yep, so if we right, have those so, folks step um, up to the stage, we're, they're on their way up right now. Okay, thank you. Do you want me to go ahead and introduce them or just wait until? Yep, go ahead and introduce uh, them. Okay, uh, so we have Patrick Martin out of Florida with Live Better Incorporated. And we have uh, Jim Hemmen out of Washington State with the uh, Enterprise Program there, uh, one of the BEP managers. Um, and that's all, all the information I have. So uh, the discussion is going to be uh, how they are dealing with the presence of food trucks uh, on Randolph Shepard sites in their respective areas. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Patrick Martin with the Florida BEP program. How's everyone doing this morning? I'd like to start today with uh, a couple things. <clears throat> Food trucks are a necessary evil. They do bring a benefit to all the state employees, especially to locations that don't have facilities operating for food service. However, I think we're all in agreement that they are a very large pain in the butt. <laughs> uh, first thing, and one of the main reasons, being a new vendor, uh, I've only been in the program for a year, I can bring the perspective of what food trucks do to a new operator that's just getting his feet wet, that's just getting uh, his finances in order or her finances in order and building that reserve that's required to properly sustain your business. And as a, a new operator, I, I did come to the program with uh, a little bit of experience running operations and businesses, but even with that experience, it's very, very hard on a new operator or even a brand new location. So when you combine them together, it makes that first year a lot harder. And it, it, we all know going into the program how little we actually can pay ourselves during that first year. Um, I just want to touch real quick. I, I have a micro market, what's called the CCOC, the Capital City Office Complex. And there's about 6,000 state employees. So within that whole complex and 
they were without food service for about two years due to the pandemic. And food trucks were a necessity and really helped out during that time. But tomorrow, they do a food truck once every Friday, or every uh, first Friday of the month or last Friday of the month. And with that, they park 19 to 22 food trucks right in front of my store. And when they do that, that means for that pay period, I'm not paying myself. When you get through and you have that reserves, you can kind of push through that and just kind of bite the bullet. But that first year is the toughest year. There's a lot of different ways to deal with it. And one thing going back to the active participation that Eleanor has talked about is we're working together with the SLA and our committee of vendors to try to work with DMS and formulate the plan to protect the new vendor, the new facility. And with doing that, uh, we're, we're really starting to develop a good plan. And uh, Jim here explained how they've dealt with it in their uh, uh, state of Washington. And I'm very impressed with it. And I'm going to be taking his ideas and then actively working with RSLA and with DMS to try and implement a similar plan. And with that, uh, I'd like to turn it over to Jim and if he could explain how they run their system there because I was very impressed with it. All right, thank you much. Good morning, everybody. Jim from Washington State. And uh, food trucks is not new to me. Um, I have been in the food truck business now um, probably 15 years. Uh, I've only been in BEP as the SLA for just under four, but I've been doing food trucks for 10 years prior uh, in a couple other um, arenas, so I already had my feet wet, my hand in the pot, if you will, and understand what it takes to actually build a truck out. Uh, historically, uh, prior to arriving in BEP, I'd already built three other trucks in three different municipalities for three other organizations. And so I just said the word three multiple times so you understand not only do I know how to build a truck, I've built them in multiple mis municipalities under multiple different circumstances, and everyone is different. Just like there's 50 states right? There's 50 SLAs, hundreds of you blind entrepreneurs out there, and there's different rules for every one of us, and they all apply. So whether or not um, all the dots connect or not doesn't matter, there are, but there are common ones. So my first food truck was in Arizona where there wasn't a lot of restrictions, and I did it. Um, I was in school food service at the time. Um, and we were in a high-need community, and we weren't getting enough food out during the summer, during the springtime, during the Christmas break, et cetera. And um, all of my operators who ran the lunch program in all the schools were losing money, just like you guys. And what we found was the government had the program called after-school lunch or supper feeding and summer feeding that was free. And we knew how to create a meal for $1.25, and if you served a meal to a, to a student at that particular time, you could get $3.50 in reimbursement. And I asked the team, and I asked all the operators, how come you're not taking advantage of the cash machine? The government's willing to pay you to feed the customer, but you're at home twiddling your thumbs, crying the blues that you're not making any money. 
Um, so we created a summer feeding program based on a food truck. We got an old step van from the machine shop uh, and retrofitted it. Grum, old grum and beat up thing. Uh, we made all the food in the commissary and it just required two drivers to drive around town, find parks, apartment complexes and give away meals and, and click a button. And that's how it worked um, the first year. The second year, we actually went to a food vendor and we built a truck with hot food and cold food and we drove it all over the city uh, in our area and found every kid that wasn't in school and fed them a meal. Then we partnered with libraries, we partnered with state offices, government buildings, city, county, you name it. The reason I just went into city, county, and government buildings is if you have a program, you're in the government buildings, but you can provide the solution to the school system, and they pay five bucks a meal today. So if you have a food truck or you have a commissary or a micromarket, you need to get rid of food. I just gave you a hint on how you can um, produce some meals. Um, it doesn't take a lot to get certified. But I did it in that area, and it was my first foray. My second foray was in Minnesota in the city of St. Paul, and we did pretty much the same thing. I had a commissary that could produce the food and fill the truck, and we drove it around, and we found people. Um, we also, in Minnesota and St. Paul, we took that food truck, and we paired it with the, with the government. So when there were emergency times and emergency food crew, or emergency maintenance crews in the city of St. Paul, out on, out on job sites, we could move the food truck to wherever they had that emergency, and we would provide food, and then we would bill them. So just another revenue stream. In Washington, um, we're in the midst of uh, building a couple trucks out right now. I've got specs all together. We have funding for it. We just haven't, we haven't done it yet. But the part I'm excited about is that there's a huge food truck association in Washington State, and they run trucks all over the place, and they park them on the street, and they park them on government properties and the like, and it's an annoyance. And the Food Truck Association is actually so bold, they've gone to the legislat le legislation, and they're trying to get our right to, our, to the property taken away so that they can have a slice of the pie. And so I cut them off at the pass uh, with our vendor committee, and we exercised our right, and we met with our facility managers and said, it's okay if you have a food truck in here, but in order to, be a food, uh, in order to come in, they need to sign an agreement with the DSB office as an authorized provider that meets all the regulations of the law. And then they need to submit a sales, a sales ticket at the end of the day for the sales provided on the property and they need to pay the, the, the RCW mandated 10% commission to our office and we'll allow them to be on property. And we started that right before COVID hit. It wasn't too much of a hiccup, but then when COVID hit, we couldn't feed anybody and this became an answer for us. We had high need buildings that were essential and we had food services that weren't open, basic vending, a little bit of uh, micro markets. But we needed to be able to feed people uh, hot food periodically and so we found a handful of trucks uh, that wanted access to our, to our properties. They wanted to partner um, and that's where the foray began and we licensed them to be able to do that. Um, at one point we had, I think we had four, maybe five that were doing it. We had three regular. Today, uh, we have two that, that are regularly out and about on call. Um, we have one that's assigned to a state hospital. They show up every Tuesday, and he's been doing it for about a year. And he's not there five days a week. It's just Tuesdays. And, and so the state hospital employees know that food truck's coming. They also know that they need to... They need to uh, about 100 people need to walk out there and patronize that truck 
in order to make it worthwhile. So that's one venture. We have another venture at our federal FAA building. There's about 250 building, uh, 250 people. We have an operator there that really can't operate, but he created the partnership with the food truck. Uh, it's our contract, but the but the operator creates the food truck uh, relationship, and he pre-sells tickets. And this is the cool part. It costs 10 bucks a meal from the food vendor for the truck, but the owner-operator at the facility will pre-sell tickets at $13.50 or $16 for a combo plate. And he pre-sells it so he can call the food truck operator and tell him how much food to, to bring. And then he comes, the food truck sells it. And then instead of the agency getting the 10% override on the site, the actual vendor gets the override commission because it's their property. And what I'm saying is by them selling the ticket, they're actually doubling their money. If I did it, the office would only get 50 or 60 bucks, but instead the owner's making two to 300 bucks. And he, by the very nature of the partnership, is, is winning because he's providing his facility with a solution. So um, we have a barbecue truck that's going around. We just signed a, a I, mean, I literally yesterday was sitting back there on my computer working with, a, with some folks that have a um, Caribbean truck and they're wanting to get on board. We have five buildings. Uh, that are excited about wanting to get on board. So we're building a route uh, for this food truck to go every Wednesday um, through the city of Olympia, which is just south of, of uh, Seattle. Uh, the reason that we're headed the food truck direction, honestly, is these are all buildings that we can't service in a traditional food service model that we have through a small cafe or coffee bar or even micromarkets. These are remote complexes that don't have the resources to have those, but they deserve food service, and this is our answer for now. Um, and it's also our foray to prove that the concept works so that, so that the ledge will fully fund the two food trucks that we're uh, wanting to embark on, which are going to cost us about six hundred grand. Um, and those two food trucks, uh, once we build them out, will actually become uh, owned and operated by BP vendors. Uh, we already have... Uh, a kitchen that we can use as a commissary if needed, and we're going to do some retrofitting. So we're essentially going to create two more jobs uh, by creating the route with our partners. Uh, I hope next year to come back and report that we got at least 10 trucks, uh, some owned by operators, but mainly um, a partnership. And the reason that we're doing it is why I, what I said earlier is the Food Truck Association is trying to take a slice of our our right and our access to the government buildings. They don't want to park on the streets anymore. They want to park in the parking lot right outside the building that's got 700 people in it. And, and uh, fortunately, our RCW protects us, but I advocate hard, and it was easier just to ask the association to do what they do best. Do you provide food that I don't? Just pay me a small slice, and I'll allow you to be here. Um, just like our vending company, they didn't have any problem. Um, anyway, I'll take questions. If I may, real quick, um, from what I also caught out of that, uh, following the, the regulation of the law, uh, any agency has to provide notification of fruit trucks, and I believe your answer was in providing the response and how you responded, and that is fill out these forms, meet this criteria, make sure that you have uh, proper insurance and that you're licensed and so forth. By providing the response, you were able to start the whole process, correct? Correct. Yeah, you caught on to that. So um, a lot of the agencies that we have, much like yours, they, uh, they have the right 
to hold a meeting and have and have catering and we we don't always have the preference uh, for the catering but this is a way that we were able to to advertise that all of our BP operations do catering and we now also do food trucks and so uh, broadcasting through COVID out to the agency directors through the facility managers to say that we have food service solutions and here's the FAQ and what you do we became part of that solution now Mind you, all I'm asking for here is that they do follow the law and they call and ask us and give us the chance to bid. Nine times out of ten, we win it. But if they want a food truck, at least now I have a food truck solution. Right? I can provide them the solution. They pay the 10%. It makes them look good. They pay, they pay the small fee. They stay out of trouble. May I also ask, what is the general dollar amount to build out a food truck? Well, you you can pick up used food trucks for about a hundred thousand, eighty to a hundred thousand. But in order to get some hot food equipment stuff on, built on board, you're going to need about another hundred. So I my first foray into it, I had uh, about two hundred and ten from scratch. Um, the last one that I built uh, was from the ground up. The vehicle itself was about a hundred thousand, and then we had about three fifty in the truck because it was completely outfitted, hood system, brand new. Uh, hot cooking equipment, uh, hot cold cabinets, the three compartment sink, the water tanks welded underneath, et cetera. It's, um, it was a mobile kitchen, just like the ones you see on TV, capable of doing about 1,500 meals a day. We could actually outfit it with enough food to do 1,500 meals a day on that particular truck. It was 25 feet, um, so it's quite expensive. You don't need to do that, but I recommend at least have a budget of about one, 150 to 180 to, to outfit Outfit, outfit one. If you have a commissary, you know, or a central kitchen that can produce all the food, then you really don't need any cooking equipment. What you need is a bunch of hot boxes and cold boxes that run into the generator on the truck. And so you could essentially do uh, a Grumman vending step man for sixty-five to seventy thousand. Questions out there? Yeah, this is Colton from Florida. Hey, guys. Hi, Patrick. Um, Hi, Colton. Do you, uh, do you have any information about this on your guys' website that details what you just laid out for us? Something that I can go read? and Because uh, I'm, yeah, well, I guess that, and how would you approach a state starting this process? I mean, what would, I guess, what would be the first thing that you would um, recommend? Uh, you know, the vendor committee or the SLA to begin to do to start working on putting a similar process in place. Are you referring to actually building a truck out or just creating the partnership? Because there, there's two different... No, create, cre cre creating the partnership. Yeah, so I don't have anything on, um, on our website. I can certainly get it to the SLA, you know, get it to you guys, uh, uh, kind of the notes that we use. Uh, essentially, we follow the same format for the food truck that we would with any building that calls our office for vending services. We do an assessment. Where are you at? How many people are in the building? What is it that you want? Um, and we do the assessment from there. And then if they want the opportunity to have a truck, 
And again, it's just communicating with the building manager so they tell their, their department heads in the building, don't just bring a food truck on, on the property without talking to food service first. It's just basic okay. exercising rights. You've got to advocate for yourself. But then being able to say, hey, we don't, we're not opposed to food trucks. It just involves the food service operator so they don't look bad. What I really want you to get out of this is everybody in the room that has a, has a restaurant or a cafe or 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 owns the rights to that property, talk to your property manager. And so when somebody wants a food truck, you go right to the food truck, you sell the, pre-sell the tickets, and you get the solution and keep the money. Um, our office is just doing it because the vendor committee didn't have the know-how. Uh, and like I said, um, it was like a vendor committee meeting. So we have an agreement. We have a contractual agreement for two years that allows them to do that. And in that, in that, in that agreement, it spells out all the legal... Uh, things that they they must they must um, meet. So I can send you the list. We require they have a uh, a liability uh, liability plate in the state of Washington. The labor and industries requires a decal on the truck. The local health department requires a certification for that truck. I want a HACCP plan for the truck. I want to know who's working that day. The food, you know, just I like a restaurant, it. It, it, they have to have the food handlers on the truck. One of them has to be served safe. Um, I want to see a menu before they go out. I want the prices. Um, I want a business, a mini business plan, uh, uh, one or two pages. I want pictures of the truck, pictures of the food, because when I go to the client and say, uh, you know, the facility, hey, I'm going to send a food truck in, they're, they're asking for all that. Is that truck licensed? Um, you know, is that propane tank going to blow up on my property? Because we don't, we don't allow propane. Is it diesel? They want to know where to park it. Do they need power? Do they need water? Um, they want to know that that operator... Um, is legit and they want to know that they're safe. And I'll tell you, having been in the business in Seattle is a very, very food truck uh, city as, you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis and St. Paul is huge, Mecca, there's others. There's a lot of people that do pop-ups on the street corner. They're not licensed. So what I want to do is make sure these guys are licensed by the book. Hopefully I answered it. Um, I, yes, will, I will uh, be happy to get a one-page kind of um, FAQ uh, out. Yeah. Jim, yeah, if you yeah. can send me your notes, um, I can put it in an article for the Vendorscope magazine. Yeah, I, Artis, I'll get, you, I'll get you one note sheet and a picture of one of the trucks and just a, a you know, general agreement that we have um, if Thanks. it helps. Okay, my, my second question is for Randall. Randall, are we making sure that Patrick and Jason are adhering to that curfew as well? Oh, Colton, you had to go there. <laughs> Randall's being the wild card on everything every night. No comment. I missed you guys. I missed you guys, man. <laughs> thank, thank you for answering my question, guys. I appreciate it. No worries. Actually, I do have one, one other question for you, uh, Jim. When currently, uh, like I said, tomorrow there's going to be 19 food trucks in front of my store tomorrow. So... <clears throat> When you have your food truck and you, you've assigned it to an area, what happens when other food trucks uh, just start showing up? We haven't had that problem yet. That's probably a yet. Um, I, I, I think the reason it's not a yet, I alluded to earlier, is because the Food Truck Association went to the legislation, a legislator, and asked for access to the capital property 
and the capital property facility manager, in this case, uh, DES Facilities Group, who funds all the buildings, took a hard stance and told the Food, uh, the food Truck Association that services for the blind had the rights to food services on the property. And um, by allowing the trucks on there without our blessing was an infringement on our rights and would lead to a lot of legal entanglement. Um, the Food Truck Association has got about 100 a hundred people, but they didn't want to. They didn't want to head down that road because let's face it, you know, a food truck operator is no different than anybody in this room. You can't handle a six to seven figure lawsuit, right? They just can't. Um, so they just didn't take it on it. So when I heard about it, I saw it because I'm a free enterpriser. I saw it as an opportunity to go meet with the food truck association president, president, and say. What's on your mind? What would you like to do? And then I shared with them what the vendor, the elected vendor committee's concerns were about infringement on their property. And then we found a way to, to meet in the middle. And I think if you were to meet with those folks and your facility people and talk about the infringement and the challenge, and yeah, it's once a month, um, you'd have an opportunity. I, Honestly, if it was me, Patrick, I would let that Friday go. I wouldn't worry about it. I would find out which, which five food trucks sold the most food, and I'd invite them back on a, on a Wednesday or a Thursday, two weeks before that, under a contract that I just said, and then market the hell out of it on the property so you make a couple thousand bucks on the override and you look like a hero. I love it. Like I said, this is an organized system and it all begins with the response and whether it's uh, florida's uh, response or whether it's any other state's agencies working with the committee of vendors uh, uh putting together the response and the plan I, I think that's the the most appropriate and most beneficial step and again tying into alan risk active participation between the, the vendors, the uh, committee of vendors, and the SLA, I, I really think that we can uh, turn uh, lemons into lemonade. Question here, this is Randall from Florida. Uh, great discussion by the panel here, very insightful for all of us. Uh, thank you for all the good information. Um, I'd like to know if other states have any Think comments they would want to make at this time, challenges they have, or solutions that they have found as well. Okay. Does anybody anybody want to address that? Has anybody else had issues with food trucks one way or the other? Oh, okay. Mike's coming. Raise your hand real high. There we go. So, uh, Travis Beck from Idaho, it's not so much a issue with the food truck, it's an issue with not being able to acquire a food truck for our program. Um, we get a lot of pushback from not so much the SLA, but the administrative portion of the agencies um, feeling that that's not a path that they're allowed to go down to or even really willing to explore. and. They always cite funding, we can't use funding for this or that. How are you guys getting the funding to purchase food trucks? How do you handle the liability of that? How are the food trucks transported from one location to another? Yeah, Travis, great question. That was uh, a big hurdle for us. Um, well, number one, uh, I'm, I'm the administrator for the, for the program, but I had to get the agency director to 
get excited about wanting to do it. And fortunately, he was because he said, I want you, I want you to vision and reinvent the program so we can move into the next generation. Um, so we had that. Secondly, we have a very large state, very rural state, um, and certain areas of our state that are unserviced. Uh, we'll never have traditional food service, so the only way that we would be able to do it would literally, uh, and if you're familiar with the state of Washington uh, at all, there's a big metropolis called the Tri-Cities in eastern Washington. It's also where the Hanford nuclear plant was. We had a presence there like 50 years ago in food service, and somewhere in, in the mid-70s, we had it in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then it shut down, and we, BP lost that site. Um, as of today, or two years ago, Department of uh, Ecology has a 10-year plan to clean up that site. Um, we can't get access to the food service inside the gate. However, we've begun exercising the rights to either put a food truck or a GE trailer on that property to be able to provide some food service to those individuals because it's a federal property. Um, and that's kind of where the idea was born. Um, we can either we can take it mobile one of two ways, either in a truck or we just buy a GE trailer, which we've done we do on a military property. We have a GE trailer totally outfitted um, as a small food service dry stand out at the naval shipyard that costs about two hundred grand. So our first foray will be a trailer. If not, I want to do a truck. The reason I want a truck in Tri Cities is because we could park it Monday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, at one Hanford site, and we could drive 20 miles down the road to another cleanup site and go Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And then you have a food service operator has, you know, money six days a week. Um, again, the 200,000 is pretty easy uh, for us because we're going to spend 200,000 to outfit a kitchen anyway. If we get a new site, we'll probably spend closer to a half a million to even get started. I'm uh, repairing kitchens at the tune of 200,000 in dilapidated equipment. So. It's pretty easy to say dollar for dollar, apple to apple. Um, the food truck is mobile, so if you have a contract for two years with the feds on one of their sites and then that project's over, you have that asset, you can move it. When you have a stationary cafe, you can't move it. You're, you just you give it up. So that's one of the challenges. Um, the second challenge of getting it through is writing what I call a mini thesis as to why, or a feasibility study, the truck makes sense. But if you have four or five buildings or properties, like I said, where you can't service and create a job, by creating a food truck, you do create a job. And that's the key word. When I started talking about how many jobs I could add or bring new people into the program, that's when it became a bigger discussion. And I'll, I'll take it offline if I need to because of the, the timing for the group and we can meet. I'm here for another couple hours before I fly out. Um, I think, Scott, I think we're, do we have any more questions? Because we're running over a little. I think I've got one more question here on the floor, and then we'll move on. Okay. Hey, uh, welcome. Nice discussion. This is Randy Hout from the state of Oregon, so just your neighbor. But uh, been in the program for 35 years, born and raised in Portland, Oregon, one of the, you know, four founders of the food cart industry, I think New York and uh, Oregon, uh, Portland, like kind of lead the nation. Um, I can I can share that um, 
obviously the SLA administration has to have a desire and an intent to implement these kind of opportunities and of course they have to be in the right up the right location to make it work but I can tell you unfortunately in Oregon the agency has secured um, food trucks food carts but they've done it with the cited uh, private industry and they've been bringing those monies into unassigned vending unbeknownst to us so we are trying to take uh, effort and energy to not only get a designated food truck for a blind vendor, but also to redirect those funds that they're um, directing into the agency and get those into the hands of the managers. So, uh, you know, we, we are working on that. I think it's a great opportunity, uh, you know, and good discussion. So, thank you. Uh, real quick, do you have any trucks parked on non-government properties, uh, just public access, high traffic areas? Not in that aspect, because I, um, I have no jurisdiction, right? So in working with the, the association, that's the deal. They can park on the street in downtown Seattle. They can park on public properties. They can park down at the Pike Street Market off to the side, and they do all that. I, I have absolutely no jurisdiction, no way to advocate or create the right. But as soon as they park on the federal property, which includes the street in front of the district courthouse, I do have jurisdiction because I can ask the U.S. Marshals to go out and move that truck right, if I want. But I don't want to move that truck because I want the people in the building, you know, uh, to, pay, to, to walk through our cafe to go out there, and we want that relationship. So we're trying to create it. But to, back to the Oregon gentleman, yeah, um, what I said, all of our contracted food service trucks that we have now are the ones that I have and the ones that I'm working on. Those are all cited coming on the property, but all again, all those commissions are going into the general commission fund into the agency, which is spread amongst the operators. And the more money I bring in, the more money I have to build a truck out. Um, and do that so that we can create an opportunity. Look, if you're going to create a vending route and buy a trailer and all the equipment for somebody, and somebody in here is going to build a vending route at a, uh, with several micro markets, you're going to have well over 100 grand or 150. So if you can take it on the road and have a truck, why not? And I think I know I know we're running over on time. This is Colton again. I have one more quick question. If um, how do you find somebody who does not have you ever had anybody encroach without without actually going through the process and how have you assessed a fine? Do you guys have anything in place for that? Well, Jim, uh, we have food trucks that bootleg us all the time, and it's not so much the food truck that I go after. I go after the building manager the facility manager that I have a relationship with because we have a cafe in there. And if we lose sales because he endorsed the food truck and allowed it on the property and we had to shut the cafe for that day, then I just, um, I show him the profit and loss statement on a daily basis. And then we have wow. discussions about, about taking that off the monthly rent or a variety of other penalties. I haven't actually had to execute one yet. I have had to sit at the table and have agreeable, disagreeable screaming matches. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, any other questions? This has been extraordinary. Um, amazing amount of information definitely needs to be continually revisited. Uh, 
Scott, is there anything else um, in person going on? I mean, actually, believe it or not, we've got one more. We'll get to uh, this gentleman's okay. had his hand up for a while. We'll get one more question in, and then we're going to move on to some golf here. So here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm, this, this is Glenn McCauley from Seattle, and I, I'm a former uh, BEP person in uh, the state. It's been about 28 years, and I'm glad to see that they're um, coming up with some innovative ideas, and, and, and I'm glad that Michael's supporting you on that as uh, agency director and stuff. Um, my question... I mean, the first Midwest on... Regional Blind Golf Tournament was held at Pebble Lake Golf Course outside Fergus Falls, Minnesota, in July 2021. The tournament organizers were Otter Tail County residents Kurt and Tisa Jones. Okay, that wasn't my question. And this uh, may seem a little bit rhetorical, but it's great that you're getting all these commissions coming into the SLA and stuff and, and supporting the vendors. Uh, my question is, where are the new jobs? When I was in the program, of course, we had a lot more facilities that were somewhat not viable somewhere, but you had like 65 vendors, and you're down to 16. Awesome. You know, at the rate you're going, it's going to be you and Michael sitting there collecting the SLA fund and splitting it among yourselves, I guess, because you guys, I mean, you, you in addition to the food trucks, you need to be going out and getting some qualified people into the program and... and going after some of the locations you don't go after, like Coleman Dock, for one. I mean, you should have vine vendors down there. Glenn, that's a great comment from a past vendor. I guess it's uh, my answer would be um, our program today isn't what I referred to 28 years ago. They had those vendors when we had every dam, every, every federal site uh, in the state of Washington. 20, 20 years ago, when I went back and, and took a look at it, there was seven federal dams operating in our state and there were occupancies of five to six hundred residents on those properties five days a week and everybody in this room would probably agree if you had access to a property with 500 um, employees there day in and day out you could run a pretty decent business and make a pretty decent living um, we have over 150 private and public entities in the state of Washington today um, that once ha housed be well over 500 and 1,000 people before COVID that have less than 150 uh, on that property today. So it, they're slim pickings, uh, but we're going after every single one of them. Um, and the reason I'm talking about these innovative solutions, uh, it's no different what we've been talking about the other two days. And uh, NABM uh, talks about if we don't go get private entities and we don't think outside the box, there will be less opportunity. So there's actually more opportunity out there. You just got to go out and do it. If I spent less time on compliance and, and hunting and was a master marketer, I would have 20 more jobs. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. All right. Well... Yeah, let's let's talk some golf, but first let's give these two a hand because this has been very informative this morning. Brought out a lot of great questions and we thank you both. Um all right, so our, our next presenter is Kirk Jones from the US uh, US Blind Golfers Association and he's gonna to talk to us about um 
uh, how he got involved with it and, and um, how we can benefit from being involved with it and what's going to happen tomorrow on the, uh, the golf outing. And um, I'm, I wish I were there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, a, couple of, uh, well, w- a couple of housekeeping notes before Kurt takes the stage here. Uh, first off, wanted to bring you up to date. We have cracked the $1,000 mark on 50-50, so somebody's going to have an excellent night tonight. So thank all of you. We're now now Artis has thrown out the challenge. She says, let's hit 1400 so let's break an all-time record. <laughs> uh, the other housekeeping note, um, in conjunction with what Kurt's going to talk about now, uh, tomorrow morning the breakfast will not be in this room. We will be over in Carson Tower. And I'll mention it again, but we'll be in Carson Tower. I'm going to tell you later on the name of the room. And you are not required to have a key to get up to the convention center on second floor in Carson Tower. But we'll have volunteers helping so that you can get up there and have a little breakfast with us if you're still here in the morning. And then we're going to go play some golf. (laughs) All right. So here's our next presenter. Okay, thanks, Scott. Uh, it's kind of like being uh, being home here. I was a I was a BEP vendor for 35 years before I retired in 17. And I used to come out to Sagebrush when uh, Richard Bird was president. Sorry to hear about his passing, and Dan Sipple. Sorry to hear about. It. In fact, I got Dan in Dan into Sagebrush years ago. He had never heard about it until I talked to him one day over in Wisconsin, and he resented it ever since I told them about it. Um, yeah, like I said, I, a quick story, when I retired, you know, everybody looked forward to retirement someday, but when I was, uh, I retired in 17, in fact, Scott has my business now. How's it doing, by the way? You making money? Good. <laughs> uh, I was standing on my dock about two or three days after I retired, and my phone rang. Someone says, I have a, we have a problem with a vending machine on the West Campus. And I says, well, that's not my problem anymore. That's your problem. <laughs> okay, golf, USBGA, United States Blind Golf Association. I've been involved with that since uh, 2018. And if it's, we are going to start with a quick three-minute video. We had a tournament up in Minnesota. In fact, we've had two of them up there. With the first one we had, uh, my coach made a video about blind golf, and uh, it's about three minutes long, and then we'll get into talking about it. So if it's ready, you can play it. hope it's ready. The first Midwest Regional Blind Golf Tournament was held at Pebble Lake Golf Course outside Fergus Falls, Minnesota, in July 2021. The tournament organizers were Otter Tail County residents Kurt and Tisa Jones. They organized the three-day tournament that included blind golfers from across the country. Kurt lost his sight at the age of three, and golf is a sport he has taken up just a few years ago. As you get older, it's like, well, what sport can I play? I can't play hockey, so you play golf. Pebble Lake's director of golf, Kevin Swenson, has assisted Kurt with learning the game and organizing the tournament. Easy peasy, nice and smooth. Awesome. Kurt has brought the enthusiasm right from the start. And then to bring this tournament here is going to, it's jump-started our membership. Everybody wants to help and volunteer. I mean, it's just, it's very cool. 
The United States Blind Golf Association was founded in 1953 and at that time consisted primarily of World War II veterans. Since then, it has grown in both popularity and players. The USBGA is an organization for individuals with visual impairments to learn, compete, and challenge the game of golf. And that's part of the, the USBGA is we want to introduce golf to all ages, kids, uh, adults that have lost their vision, and that you know that you do have a life after you lose your vision, you go out and do something, you don't just sit home on the couch. Through youth and adult clinics and championship tournaments, the association brings skills, values, and opportunities that make a lifelong difference. Blind golf is played strictly to the rules of golf produced by the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews and the United States Golf Association. They have published a modification of the rules of golf for golfers with disabilities. Golf is a difficult sport for sighted golfers. Imagine playing blind. A non-sighted golfer, we work hard on tempo, so that if they swing too hard, they don't have that a depth perception to, to keep everything in perspective. So Shorter swing? Shorter swing, up to half swing, maybe three quarters. The International Blind Golf Association, the IBGA, has developed a handicap system that is operated by all member associations and is used for international competition. Since the inception of the association's junior golf program in 1992, over 5,000 children and adults have been introduced to the joys and social interactions around blind and vision impaired golf. National and regional blind golf tournaments are the peak of achievement for blind and visually impaired golfers. When a blind or visually impaired person is introduced to the game of golf, labels and barriers disappear. Goals are attained. Accomplishments are earned. Awesome. Each one of our members has a story to share about how they faced overwhelming challenges in life. Once they set their minds to it, they found a way to overcome these challenges through strength and determination. They found their way to inspire and succeed. The United States Blind Golf Association. You don't have to see it to tee it. And there are a couple uh, uh, vendors now that are that are um, in a USBGA. Uh, Phil Hubbard, he's not here this this week. And Orlando Ramirez, are you here, Orlando? Nope, not in the room. Okay. Um, I always like to start these uh, speeches that I do when I go out to like Lions clubs or whatever, and I like to tell everybody that everybody knows somebody who is blind. I don't care if it's your uncle or not, if not blind, visually impaired, everybody knows somebody, whether it's a neighbor, an uncle, a cousin, brother, and a lot of times people don't know what to do with them once they start losing their vision. You know, what are we, we going to do with Uncle Bob? What's he going to do now? Well, if he played golf or if he's interested in golf, he should realize that he can still do it. It's, uh, we, in, in blind golf, we have three categories, B1, B2, and B3, depending on your, your visual acuity. B1s are totally blind, and then it goes up from there. B2s can see a little bit. B3s can see better. Um, we have tournaments around the country. We have uh, four or five of them scheduled this year uh, that people can participate in. Hopefully, Scott, who is now a member, will 
be at a, one or two this year. Um, we have all ages, uh, doesn't matter what your age is. We have people in the, in the organization from uh, 1918, I'm sorry, 18 to 91. We have one guy, uh, John Casolo, he's 91 years old. And when I first met him about five years ago, he was about 86 then, and he had just quit downhill skiing. He says he couldn't do it anymore. Had to, had to stop. Um, it's a frust- if, if anybody's played golf, you realize how frustrating it can be. Uh, and it's no different for blind golf. Uh, the only requirement in blind golf, visually impaired golf, is you have to have a coach. Uh, the coach serves basically two purposes. It's, uh, they line you up. They you know, tell you how far you got to hit it and, which, and just give you directions and stuff like that. The other uh, point of having a coach is it's someone to blame when your game sucks. You can <laughs> put it all on them. <laughs> it's been around, like, uh, like the video said, since the World War II. Uh, World War II vets started it. Uh, the two main ones were a guy named Charlie Boswell and another one named Joe Lazario. Uh, they're both passed now, uh, but Joe Lazario's daughter is still involved. She's our she's our secretary, and up until about 2003, it was only totally blind people could play. It was only for B1s, but we realized at this point that we have to, in, in you know, in order to increase our membership, open it up to visually impaired, uh, and that's what happened. Um, now, like I said, that was like 2003. And uh, it's just a good, I can't, I can't you know, when, when I first joined in 2018, uh, I knew nothing about it. I went out, my buddy came up one day, we went out to a driving range, and it went pretty well. And I, I knew that they had a tournament. Well, we went back and looked at the website and realized, wow, they have tournaments all over the place. So we, jo- we joined, and uh, we've met some great people. Uh, everybody is welcomed, and you go out there and you play your game of golf, and you come back to the clubhouse and have a couple beers, and everybody trashes you, and you know you trash them, and it's just like you know any other any other sport. Um, tomorrow we're going to have a clinic over at uh, Top Golf. I had wanted to get out to a golf course, actual golf course here, but I couldn't. Couldn't make the arrangements uh, with anybody. It's Super Bowl weekend, and they're all really busy. So we're going to do that Top Golf tomorrow morning. Uh, there's still, I imagine, there's still some slots open, Scott. So if you want to do that, sign up. What I'd like to really do is get some of the get get uh, some of the directors of uh, uh, BEP to take. We have some cards and uh, brochures out here, and I would really like you to take some of that information back to your rehab counselors and uh, you know let them know this is available to your to their to their clients uh, you know life isn't all work life isn't all going to school you got to have some recreation and this is a good way to, good place to start uh, whether they want to join the USBGA or not it's still you know you can still go out and play learn how to play the game um, about three years ago, we, uh, my family always had a golf outing every summer. Well, I, I, I never went because I couldn't play. Well, three years ago, I was able to go with my uh, two brothers and some cousins, 
and out and, and you know, actually participate in, in the day-long tournament. It was great. So it's a, it's a great game for socializing, uh, for competing, and I hope some people here take some interest in it. And if you have any questions, uh, I have, like I say, I have cards out there with my phone number on it. Please call me. I would love to uh, answer any questions you have about it. Anytime you want to call me, just give me a call. Or if you have any questions today, I will be glad to, glad to talk to you about them. Super, super. Kurt, can I, can I ask the first question? Certainly. So what, what do I need to know to become a member of USBGA? You call our um, uh, membership director, Sheila Drummond, out in Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, you should know her number at the top of my head, but I don't. It's 570-368. My wife has it out there. I, I can't remember. <laughs> I just pick up my phone and say, call Sheila. I don't know what it is. Um, and uh, you have to, it's a $100 fee per year, $100 you know, to, to be a member. And you have to go to a, uh, through an eye doctor to find out what your visual acuity is. With, find out if you're a B1, 2, or 3. And then if you want to participate in tournaments, you uh, get a handicap and you're ready to go. You get three scores to get a handicap. Go out and play three rounds of 18. Three, you know, three rounds of 18 and you're ready to go. Um, the information is in the program too for the contact information and membership. It's on the exhibitor list. Yep, and it's also on our website if you want to learn more, uh, usblindgolf.com. We have videos, we have the history, we have phone numbers, everything you want to, yeah, more than you want to know about it. It's a very good website, and there's, I've been watching some of the videos on there, and there's some excellent videos. Whoever put that stuff together, it's excellent. So, any other questions? Okay, I'm going to bring the mic back. Hang on, it's coming. If anybody wants a brochure or a business card, raise your hand and I'll walk to hand deliver to you in the next two, three minutes here. Thanks. All right. Any other questions for Kurt? And we'd love to, we'd love to have you with us tomorrow. I'm sorry. Go ahead. thought I heard one. No? All right. I don't think right. so, but... Uh, Hang tight here, Kurt, for just a quick second. I'd like to do a photo op with you. And uh... um, I can give the ending code for this session. Perfect. And the ending code is C as in cat, 300M as in mother. Again, it's C300M as in mother. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk to you or not. Um, I think we are up on a break. Are we not? Yep. Uh, looks like we are up on a break. And uh, quick housekeeping, couple of housekeeping notes, please. Um, give me just a second to pull them up. So, as I mentioned, tomorrow morning, if you'd like to join us for breakfast, we have a nice little breakfast available. But we are going to be in the Carson Tower and it's going to be at the Shoal Creek Room. Shoal Creek Room in the second floor of the Carson Tower. They have a conference center over there. 
you're not required to have a key for the Carson Tower to get to the conference center. And we will be able to help you get up there to have breakfast. We'll have a nice little breakfast at 9.30. We are going to meet in front of the uh, Rush Tower out here. And we'll be taking transportation to Topgolf. We'll get a little time to get a clinic at Topgolf. And then we'll bring you back. And we should have you back by about 1 o'clock for sure. So if you have connecting flights or things you need to do. But uh, please take advantage of that. And uh, one more item here. Hang on. I know I have some people that want to connect with each other. Okay, uh, for the Hawaiians, if you guys can hang tight. I've, uh, Jerry, Jerry Gom, if you're in the room, could you uh, come on up to the podium and I'll have you uh, meet the Hawaii folks. And with that, we'll take a little break. So, uh, Cruise Director, anything else or are we on break for a little bit? Um, it looks to me from the schedule like we have 15 minutes of um, stretch and run time. All right. Back at 1020. So, Andy, how's, how are things going at Accessible Pharmacy? Oh, everything's going incredibly well at Accessible Pharmacy. Um, we're growing, and, and our growth comes from a few different ways. We're growing geographically. Um, you know, we're adding new states and new areas of the country. Um, we're growing, you know, numerically. We, we add new patients every day. But most of the growth, which is really exciting growth, is very it's qualitative growth. It's, you know, feedback that we get from our patients, um, from our staff, from the healthcare providers we work with, from you know, organizations like ACB, um, you know, a lot of nonprofits. And, uh, you know, feedback about, like, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and how we can be more inclusive and more accessible. And also like what other kinds of solutions exist in the marketplace? What other kinds of services we should be providing? So our patients are not only benefiting from us, providing them services, um, they're driving our business. And uh, it's, it's, it's really fun to, be, fun to be a part of. So Andy, this is just is not like a, a finite event. It's not like you cross the finish line and you say, oh, that's it, we're accessible. Right. Um, you know, there's the continuous pursuit of accessibility. You know, there's always new things that we're learning. Um, there's always new technology. There's always, you know, some other company or some other, some other individual who develops a, a better way to create access. And so, um, it, it's you know, like I said, it's the ongoing pursuit. And what's interesting is that things, solutions that we create for one population that enable them to get better access, um, ultimately extend to other individuals. And I'll give you a unique example. This is a solution that we have for the blind community. Um, we have a collection of audio labels that empower someone who um, would benefit from having a medication label read out loud to them. And there's a bunch of existing solutions in the marketplace that are awesome. We're developing some of our own, just using like QR codes. And it's really, it's a, it's a collection of solutions that can empower someone to manage their medication better. Um, we got a call recently from a group within the Pennsylvania Department of Health who said, hey, we learned about these audio labels that you provide to uh, you know, blind and low vision adults. Um, can you do those in different languages? Because we have a collection of refugees and asylum seekers. Oh yeah, sure. Who are not, not only do they not speak a word of English, a great deal of them are illiterate. And they would incredibly benefit from something like this. So here's a solution that has existed in the marketplace for a while. Um, companies like Script Talk or Way Around, 
um, that all of a sudden, because of that solution, it's now creating access to people who are, you know, who come to this country under like difficult circumstances. And now for the first times in their lives, you're able to identify that it's their medication, identify the instructions. Um, and uh, it, it's really cool stuff. So like I said, accessibility, it's not, it, it, it's ongoing and it, it's a very dynamic word and it's a very dynamic activity. So uh, we're just scratching the surface. Um, we have to have a conversation with the patient. It's not like the pharmacist, the, the, the physician just says, oh, I'm going to send this over to accessible pharmacy and they'll send you your medication. Right. Um, everything we do is personalized. There's no one size fits all model. The one size fits all model exists in the marketplace. Um, some of the big pharmacy chains like, have perfected it. And that's why they make billions of dollars. But for someone that has, you know, unique needs that are beyond just like, hey, here's a bottle of pills with a label on it. Um, it's important for us to have a conversation to learn about who is this person. Um, you know, in this case, like what is their level of sight? What other kinds of health issues are they dealing with? Um, are they comfortable with technology? Um, what are they doing that's working for them with the medication management? What's not working for them? What's their biggest challenge? Um, are there other people involved with their medication management? Like, is there someone else in the home who's a caregiver to that individual? Or is that individual a caregiver to someone else, like a, a partner, a husband, wife, a child, a grandparent, parent? Um, so I, I shared that long-winded story because like, we need to learn about the patient. And what we do is it takes us about a day. We, we do some work. Um, we, we, we get together a collection of recommendations for the patients uh, based upon similar patient profiles that we have with other individuals. So we may say, hey, here are some things that may be able to, to help you. Um, we contact their insurance company to confirm eligibility. We work with most insurance companies. And very importantly, uh, we have our pharmacists actually review the patient profile. We find that at least 50% of the time, a patient also self-medicates in addition to the prescription medications they're getting. Oh, okay. So they may be getting like, you know, a, a prescription from their uh, cardiologist and their ophthalmologist and their general practitioner and their endocrinologist. And th for the most part, those medications usually work together because the prescribers usually will check the chart to make sure that the patient, what the patient's taking. Right. But the patient often on their own ends up taking a multivitamin and vitamin C and fish oil and some root that their cousin told them about and some leaf that they saw on television that's good for their skin. And they decided to, you know, on their own, they want to become a vegetarian. And they're doing all these different things and a, quite often a combination of those things that we think are benign, vitamins, herbs, supplements, food, um, can cause really damaging interactions with the prescription medications. Right. That's a bad scenario or right. just a benign scenario, which is they undermine the, the body's ability to absorb the medication and get the benefit from that medication. And everything that we do that makes us accessible, there's no charge for it. Um, assuming the patient wants to work with us, we deliver it to their home. Um, and if the patient needs help identifying what's there, whether it's, let's just say we send them a new uh, medical device, uh, some new packaging, um, they can contact us through Be My Eyes. We're the Be My Eyes pharmacy partner. And we can actually train them on how to use devices. We can explain to them the packaging, explain to them the instructions, you know, and really increase the likelihood that this person can do it independently uh, with less stress and live healthier lives. Uh, we also uh, run a whole collection of educational programs that generate a great... At first, we were doing it because we were like, oh, this is a cool thing to do. We can run some webinars to pick different therapeutic topics and talk about them. And so um, 
what started off as just a cool way to share some information with our patients has actually been an opportunity for us to communicate to new potential patients as well. It's interesting. One of the reasons why a lot of the big chains don't do what we do is we don't get reimbursed by the insurance companies at all for any of the things that we do that make us accessible. Right. Um, whether that be braille labeling or, or compliance packaging or different kinds of like expedited delivery, um, we have to absorb those costs. Um, and so from a business model perspective, there's good and the bad. The bad is we have lower profit margins than traditional pharmacies because we have okay. to absorb all the accessibility costs. The, the flip side of it is, no, you know, we're, we, we're the only ones who do what we do. Um, and so we are able to garner a, a larger share of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pick, pack, and ship medication every day. Cool. And, and that makes sense. No one ever comes to our building. You're more than welcome to come visit us, Rick. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like a, it's, it's a closed-door pharmacy, which is basically everything that we do is uh, shipped out of there and delivered to people's homes as opposed to people coming and picking up. So how would I go about converting, you know, my, my prescription to your services? Oh, it, 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 it's simply a phone. Well, there's a few ways. The easiest way, the most common way is simply calling us and having a conversation. It's about a 10-minute conversation, and we can determine if we're a good fit. There's no strings attached. Um, as I said, we'll still go to work. We'll do that 24-hour thing where we'll review the medication. We'll contact the insurance companies. We may reach out to prescribers just to check to make sure, uh, get some feedback from them. Um, and then we'll call the patient back. And if the patient wants to move forward with us, we can have conversations about the labeling that would benefit them, the packaging that would benefit them, and how they would like it delivered. Okay. Uh, so that, that usually happens on the telephone, uh-huh. but quite often it happens on Be My Eyes too. As I mentioned, we are the pharmacy partner in Be My Eyes, and you can find us in the specialized help section. Um, we do work with a small but growing collection of uh, deaf patients, uh, which actually grew out of the deaf-blind population that we serve. Alex has a PhD. And wow. he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the accessibility of the American marketplace for consumers who are blind. Oh, and within cool. it, there's a whole section on healthcare. And you know, he, the idea that he and I, this idea came from his research where he was explaining to me the challenges that individuals who are blind face when they're navigating healthcare, whether it be you know going to an exam room, scheduling a doctor's appointment, you know, ending up in an emergency room. Um, going to a pharmacy, managing medication, managing diabetes. Sure. And I was like, is anyone doing anything about this? And he was like, there are a lot of companies that are doing really great things, but no one's offering that holistic approach, that A to Z approach. Um, What's a good way to reach you? What's your phone number? Okay, so our website's simple. It's, it's accessiblepharmacy.com. Um, okay. It's a screen reader friendly website. It also has large fonts for individuals who would benefit from that. Um, our toll-free number is 888-633-7007. All right, Madam Cruise Director, I believe we've got everybody rounded up and headed back to their seat here. So uh, if you are ready to proceed, maybe we shall move forward. Uh, I probably I should give the beginning... Shall I give the beginning code again? So yes, so yes, please. I'm sorry, artist. Let's have the beginning code... Okay, I'm gonna give it again. Um, it is C as in catch, 312 L as in love. Again, C 312 L. Thank you. Okay, um, we don't have any door prizes or anything yet? No, not now. 
Okay. All right. Just making sure. And heads up, um, the audio is cutting in and out on, on my end. So um, if I disappear, my apologies in advance. I will try to come back in. But it's it's doing weird stuff on this thing. I got your back. Not um, to worry. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, next session um, is uh, how military dining lawsuits have prevailed on the side of RF spenders. Um, our guest is Jeff Tom from California, a retired attorney and advocate for the RF program. Um, Mr. Tom, are you with us? I am. Hi, Jeff. Hi there. And Linda. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Can you hear me out there in the room? Morning, Jeff. Oh, Scott, good. Uh, so this... Everybody, if we could have everybody's attention, please. Everybody could quiet down, please. Thank you. So we will be cruising to a couple different states throughout the course of this uh, discussion. Um, and, and I want to start by saying that I, I really am glad to be providing you this information because unlike so many of the challenges that have uh, come during the pandemic, I get to talk to you about some positive news. So I like that. So just to sort of set the stage a little bit about a topic that is familiar to probably most of you, the battle during the last, uh, I don't know, couple of decades, I guess, has been over dining facilities uh, under the Department of Defense. And specifically, the battle is between the uh, Randolph Shepard priority and the Javits-Wagner O'Day Act uh, for Ability One programs. Um, so in, in the main, the some of the cases have said that, um, that the priority only impacts management and certain central uh, co components of running a dining facility, such as serving the food, and other auxiliary, auxiliary functions like sanitation, janitorial, etc., uh, are under the Javits-Wagner O'Day Act. And other cases have held that the randolph shepherd priority is dominant, uh, and and that you know all of the functions of running a dining facility on federal property apply to the RS priority. So with that sort of um, a summary as to where we are, um, I, I would only add to that that, you know, clearly uh, the military uh, is tempted to limit the RS priority for a number of reasons, saving money, one of them, having more control is another of them. So there are various reasons that uh, the, the priority has been under attack. One of the real positive uh, things, well, first we'll get to a negative thing. Late in the Obama administration, it looked as if the Department of Defense was going to come out with regulations that would have essentially taken the uh, ability one side of things that would have, you know, severely limited the Randolph Shepard priority to management functions. However, 
In the Trump administration, um, Secretary of Education DeVos came out very strongly in favor of the Randolph Shepard priority in a 2018 letter. And um, coincidentally or not, the Department of Defense regulations, which were uh, proposed during the Obama administration, were shelved and never finalized. Moreover, that letter, as that, that Secretary of DeVos wrote, you're going to hear about uh, as being an important point in the case law that we're going to be discussing in just a minute. So, um, as we know, the parties have sort of dug into their respective sides, and that has brought about several le- recent litigation uh, in this area. The first case, as we're going to start cruising, uh, is to, in the state of Texas. So it's uh, Workforce Commission versus United States Department of Education. Um, this was a 19, uh, 2020 case brought by the state of Texas against the Army for failure to give the Randolph Shepard priority to a blind person bidding for a dining facility contract. Um, the court held in favor of the state of Texas, the, the district court, and the appeals court upheld the district court decision. Uh, this was over Fort Bliss specifically. Um, in 2014, the Army had taken a dining facility contract that had historically been in the hands of one BEP vendor and split it when, and when it went out for bid so that the management, the cooking, the food serving was uh, retained um, under the BEP program, but the so-called support uh, services, including janitorial and other sanitation services, which is called uh, dining uh, facilities uh, attendant, or DFA, I don't know what exactly they call it that, but that's what they call it, uh, were bid separately without approval uh, uh, from the Department of Education, actually, uh, and they did not use the RS priority, the Randolph Shepard priority. So an arbitration panel actually held in favor of the Army, but uh, the uh, Texas then uh, brought suit, and as I said, both the district court and the appellate court um, held that the arbitration decision was wrong. Um, the appeals court, uh, in upholding the district court decision in favor of the state of Texas, held that the scope of the Randolph Shepard priority was very strong. It, it interpreted the phrase operation of a facility, uh, in a very broad manner so that would it, so that it would include all the purposes for which uh, a, 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 an entity needs to run a, a facility. And that would include, obviously, um, janitorial, sanitation, et cetera. So in light of that purpose, it include limiting, hang on for something, I'm gonna close the door. All right, sorry about that. That's one of the hazards of Zoom. <laughs> Okay, 
So that was obviously an excellent case um, because it upheld the priority in a very broad manner. Um, there was also litigation in the state of Virginia that I'm not really going to go over um, today in depth at all, but it also held in a, in a positive direction. But what I also wanted to mention about the Texas case is, as I said earlier, the uh, case also relied on Secretary of Education's DeVos's letter in 2018. So um, it, the court did hold, though, that there might be tasks that would fall outside the, uh, the Randolph-Shepard priority, but that for the most part, a, it would have to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis because for the most part, the um, broad interpretation was the correct one. So now we'll move on our cruise to the great state of Hawaii. Ho'opono Services for the Blind versus U.S. Department of Education. So this uh, uh, came, final decision came out last year by the appellate court. Uh, again, it was not appealed to the Supreme Court, which these cases could have been. <clears throat> it was a similar case to that, to the one in uh, Texas, the Fort Bliss case, with some differences that we'll talk about in a minute. Again, the appellate court accepted a broad interpretation of an operation of a facility with respect to whether custodial and other services fall under the Randolph-Shepard priority. In this case, um, which is a little bit different, the Army decided to perform all of the major services that are part of the full service model, um, except for the dining facilities attendant contract services, so that there were really no services that were gonna be bid out for uh, under the Randolph Shepard priority. Um, the court made two holdings, one of which was pretty interesting. It, it held that the, uh, the federal government, the, the, in this case, the army had failed procedurally uh, to notify the Department of Education so that the Department of Education could determine whether, in this case, it's the Re Rehabilitation Services Administration, which is part of the Department of Education, so that that department could determine whether uh, the Army was correct in its decision not to bid this under the uh, Randolph-Shepard priority. It can do that in when it's in the best interests of the United States. And I'm not going to get into, you know, specifics on when they can make that case, but you know, if there's not enough, uh, uh, you know, patrons of the facility, for example, that might be one circumstance. So, you know, that that's going to be a case-by-case -case determination. And this case did hell that you do have to let the um, Department of Education weigh in. Um, but it also held, uh, citing again Secretary DeVos's letter, that these janitorial and other attendant facility services were part of the Randolph-Shepard priority so that 
you know, there's still the issue of, you know, whether the, the army could have taken the whole contract away, uh, but that it, it couldn't parse it out and say, we'll give the janitorial ones to the, you know, Source America, you know, group, which is under the Javits Wagner O'Day Act, but we're going to take away the part which would otherwise go to the Randolph Shepard priority. So um, these are both important wins for the program. And um, the trend is obviously in, in a very positive direction. So um, check my notes here for a minute. Okay. So what are the commonalities to these cases? Um, I have about five minutes left, and I'm going to go through this quickly. They both had good attorneys. In Texas, they used a gentleman by the name of Peter Nolan, who is retired now, but who's probably the foremost expert in the country, at least from my perception, on the randolph Shepard program. Um, and we need to make sure we continue to have good attorneys in this area. Um, in Hawaii, um, not only was there a really excellent attorney from the state of Ohio, but the people, the, the representatives of the attorney general's office who um, brought this case, the Hawaii attorney general, were excellent. I actually listened to a tape of the oral arguments, and um, this was a case in which they basically slaughtered the attorney for the other side. So um, obviously this trend could be reversed. Um, we don't know if, you know, the Army or the Source America One program might want to, you know, somehow, sometime take this to the Supreme Court. Um, but even more important, <clears throat> it's uh, we're going to have to continue our advocacy. We're going to have to make sure that states decide to fight these cases like Texas and Hawaii. We don't want a state to abandon the randolph Shepard priority in an instance where the one of the, you know, armed services decides to either uh, not bid it out because they want to keep it to themselves or whether they want to parse it out in, in part and take some of it away from the randolph Shepard priority. So it's going to be important from an advocacy perspective that we have um, people in, in our SLAs who who, you know, really want to stand up for the Randolph Shepard program. And, and finally, and this will be my last point, you know, we're at a time when, as we all know, things are getting more and more difficult in terms of, uh, you know, state building sites, federal building sites and things like that. So these type of, you know, lucrative facilities like an art dining facilities are really important. Um, and I would urge you to make sure that we don't lose any opportunities to retain and even expand them. So with that, if there's any questions, I know there's not much time left, but if there's a question or two, I will take it. Okay, I don't hear any. Any, any questions for Jeff? Jeff, you did too good a job of laying out the case here, so. That's right. I hope so, anyway. Give Jeff a hand. Thank you so much, Jeff. We appreciate all that you keep us updated on. Okay, I'll talk to you later today. Madam Cruise Director, are you still with us?
Okay, I did finally unmute. I'm sorry, I've been sitting here poking star six trying to unmute. Um, yeah, uh, okay, so uh, moving on to our next event, um, we have uh, Miss uh, Sandra Benson from the Summerlin Toastmasters Club uh, telling us how uh, Toastmasters has training for uh, help being people communicate with each other and uh, in front of an audience. Um, do we have audio or I'm not hearing anything? Well, good morning, Randall Shepard vendors of America, and welcome to Las Vegas. Is everybody winning out in the casino? Yeah, I, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But you know, the key to winning big is to lose big. That is the key. So, but I will tell you advice from a local native. If you leave Vegas breaking even, you are considered a winner. It's all good. As our artists, by the way, thanks artists for having me, Randall Crosby and Scott, thank you for having me. I spoke last year at the virtual conference, and this year I am here live and in person. As artists said, I am a member of Toastmasters. Does anybody know what Toastmasters is? Have you heard of it? Few people, a few people. Toastmasters has been sold as, you know, the club for public speaking. Did you know that the number one fear of most people, the number one is public speaking, and the number two fear is death? Yes, you've heard it, number one. So according to Jerry Seinfeld, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> It's pretty scary when you think about it. Well, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am an entrepreneur. I have two of my own businesses. And I've been in Toastmasters since 2017 when my only child went off to college and I was suffering from the empty nest syndrome. And I decided that I thought maybe I want to be a public speaker someday. Toastmasters was an opportunity for me to kind of put my toe in that speaking pool and see if I actually had any talent to do it. Let me just premise that by saying that I'm used to being in front of people. I'm a professional musician by trade, but I've never spoken in front of a crowd, which is a whole other skill set. If you ever thought, I'm never going to do a public speech, let me tell you this. If you're in business, you're talking to people all day long. Don't think of Toastmasters as a place to do a public speak. It's really a place to get better at communication, learning how to talk to people. You all know in business, you make a living by talking to people, and that's how you get your accounts. If you feel that you're lacking in skills, Toastmaster might be the place to hone some of those skills, be a better communicator, and most of all, a better listener, because that's another skill set that you acquire. I'm going to give you some little tidbits, fun facts of Toastmasters. Toastmasters is considered an international organization. There are 280,000 members worldwide. They're available in 144 countries, and there are over 14,000 clubs internationally, which is fabulous. As bad as COVID was for all of us, one of the many benefits that happened was that Zoom came into play, and most of the clubs I would say 
95% of the clubs now are operating in Zoom meetings. So if you ever thought, wow, I'd like to try Toastmasters, maybe you have trouble getting to a meeting, you can log in via Zoom. Another beauty of the clubs are, is that if you, say you want to brush up on Japanese, well, they have clubs in Japan that you could join and practice Japanese. So in addition to being a better speaker and communicator, you can learn a foreign language as well. So we have several clubs in Las Vegas who have members chiming in from Europe or from Germany, and they're coming in because they want to work on their English-speaking skills. So there's another advantage to joining Toastmasters. Toastmasters has been around since the 20s, and not until the mid-80s were women allowed in the group because they finally got smart and realized what they were missing. So in addition to that, I wanted to talk about like a simple meeting. If you go to a Toastmasters meeting that I encourage you all to at least attend, it's free to attend. If you decide to join, it'll run you about $120 a year. There are three portions to a meeting. The opening part of the meeting deals with something called table topics. And what that is, that's the impromptu side of Toastmasters. And it's really interesting because recently we had a club meeting. It was an open house. We had a lot of guests come in. And I happen to be the table topics master for the evening. And what it is, you call on somebody and you can ask them a generic question. And it's really testing your ability to think on your feet. I brought one of the guests up into the front of the room, and one of the questions that I asked him was, what is something that you do now or think differently about than you did in the past? Which I thought was a pretty simple question, especially if you're past the age of 40, you have some clarity at that point. And this gentleman who's, who's, who's an entrepreneur got up in front of the room and he stammered and he was quite tongue-tied for at least 30 seconds. He didn't know what to say. And it, and it took him a minute to come up with a, 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 an answer that seemed somewhat logical. I went up to him after the meeting and I said, what did you think of the meeting? And he said, you know what's really interesting? He goes, I'm not good at making small talk. And I thought, well, if you're in business, that's really the crux of, you know, learning how to communicate with people. If you're sitting in a room with a client and you want to know a little bit more about them, you better have an arsenal of questions or the ability to communicate and get to know somebody on a more personal level. Because we all know in business, I, I have this great saying, I keep telling my daughter this, your credentials may get you in the door, but eventually what's going to get you hired or people are going to want to hire you for your services is that they like you. And you have to make sure that you are coming across as a likable um, business person that they can call, that they can talk to, that they can communicate with. If you have, they have concerns, you want to, you want to establish that relationship as a safe space for your customers to come to you. If you feel that you're lacking in those skills, Toastmasters may be a place for you to attend, attend a meeting and brush up on those skills. Another thing that Toastmasters does, if you feel that you want to get into public speaking, there's always a part of the meeting that opens up for speeches, prepared speeches. And Toastmasters is not just a live event, they have online learning. That's the beauty about Toastmasters. Not only do you get to come in and practice your speech, but they also have online learning, which is you get to pick a path, they call it. There's 11 paths available. One of mine is, is humor, engaging humor 
humor? Aren't I funny? That was one of the things I wanted to work on because I always thought I was funny, but I've actually learned how to be more funny through Toastmasters. And there's a series of assignments, and it's five different levels. And in those five levels, you're probably going to do at least 20 different speeches. So this is really good training ground for that. Also, one of the other portions of a meeting is what we call the evaluation side. It's nice to know how you're doing. And your fellow Toastmasters will, at the end of a meeting, participate in something called the evaluation, and you get live feedback, usually from one other Toastmaster, and we don't call it a critique, because a critique has a negative connotation. Feedback is something where you get positive reinforcement for the things that you're doing, as well as as you also get some suggestions. So it's a place to feel safe. Maybe you want to practice a presentation. Maybe you're going to talk to a big client. You want to make sure that you're well prepared. You could go to a Toastmasters meeting and take your pitch and go in and present it to the club and get some live feedback on how you're doing. There's a lot of value to be, becoming a Toastmaster. If you feel that maybe you lack, maybe at a family party, maybe you, there's family that you haven't seen in a while and, and you would like to talk to them, but you don't know how to start that conversation, Toastmasters is a great place to figure out, do you have the ability to communicate and be heard? And also, how are your listening skills? One of the things about most people when you talk to them, this is, a, this is such a true statement, most people listen with the intent to respond. And sometimes they don't even let you finish a sentence before they start speaking at you because most people really don't listen. They hear you, but they're not paying attention to what you have to say. As a Toastmaster, you get better at listening to people. And, some, and most people just want to be heard. That's really the key to, to really having a great communication with somebody. And I, and I challenge all of you as you're here sitting through all of these different things and making new friends, when you meet someone, somebody new, challenge yourself. Step out of your comfort zone. Ask them about their lives. Ask them about their business. And listen intently when they respond to make sure that your next question is relevant to what they, they just told you. That is an indicator that you're paying attention. And if you go into a client and you're not listening to what they're telling you, you're probably not going to get their business. It is an essential tool to doing good business with good clients. You want to be a good service provider. You also want to have good clients. And I, was, and I just found out from my friend Randall Crosby, who was telling me that you have the right to refuse business, which I think is fabulous, which you should do as business people. And what do you base that on? Is it something that a client says to you? Are you getting not such a good vibe? Maybe they're saying things that aren't rubbing, are rubbing you the wrong way. That's showing you your listening skills are intact. If you want to brush up on some of those skills, I would highly highly encourage you, try a meeting out. By the way, if you join Toastmasters, if you join a local club or a club in a hybrid situation, you can also attend other clubs as a guest, or we have something called contest season coming up. If you want to participate in a speech contest, you can do that, and then you can go practice at some other club. So when I was participating my first year in contest, I think I attended nine other club meetings 
to practice. So again, there's opportunity to not just speak at your own place, your own club. You can visit other clubs get, and your audience becomes broader. See, that's the other beauty of it. You have a global audience. Maybe you want to attend a club in Germany and get their feedback. That's the beauty of Toastmasters. Because it is a global community, you have access to the entire, the entire world, if you will. And because of Zoom, now you really have access to all of that. I think, let's just talk quickly about leadership. Toastmasters is a total volunteer organization. However, in addition, you can also become a club officer. There are seven positions open every year. Some clubs offer leadership positions twice a year, as well as, as the organization has other opportunities to become, to test your leadership skills. Maybe, maybe you're kind of a shy person. Maybe you don't know if you, if you have leadership skills. Toastmasters is an opportunity to spread your wings and try that. And here's the good news. They can't fire volunteers. I tell people that all the time. So if you're unsure if you're going to be good at it, the best part about Toastmasters is that there's always a support network for you. If you thought, maybe I want to try being the president of my club, you can't do anything wrong. That's what I tell people. Just do it. Jump in. If you make mistakes, there's a safety net in every club and in every organization, in every city, in every state to have you not fail. There's no such thing as failure in Toastmasters. It's a very great support network, positive people helping you reach your dreams and becoming a better speaker and communicator. Does anybody have any questions? Come on, you guys. Communication. Yeah, Ask me something. Now's not the time to be shy. <laughs> the fee is about 120 It's like $45, but then clubs have fees because if they're paying rent on a room. So I tell, I tell people it's about 120 a year. You pay the fee. It's bi, you know, bi-yearly. It's you know, twice a year. As a matter of fact, dues are coming up. Um, and you can pay it through, uh, I think they have different ways to pay it, PayPal, or different, it's simple to pay your dues, or write a check, if you still write checks, I don't know if anybody uses checks anymore. Any other questions? Oh, yep, I've got one my over friend here. Randall Crosby, my fellow Toastmaster. All right, Randall, here you go. Thank you, Sandra, for being here. Thank you, Sandra, for being here today. Uh, I've been in Toastmasters four years now. And I personally absolutely have found it to be transformational in many ways. And the 20-minute speech can't even begin to touch on those things from Sandra here today. Uh, a couple comments and then a question. We've established I'm a co-founder with uh, a husband and wife. The husband is totally blind. The wife is sighted. She says she's light-dependent, which is pretty cute, I think. Uh, so she vi has vision. But they created a club for people who are visually impaired, and it's called VIPOnlineToastmasters.com, <clears throat> and it specifically is to help visually impaired people become acclimated to Toastmasters, since there are, are some accessibility issues, unfortunately, that we are advocating for ourselves to improve upon and change. And Sandra, you touched on very many points, which are terrific. Can you talk a little, we do have a, a, a quote a lot of us say in Toastmasters. I joined Toastmasters to help myself, mm -hmm. but now I stay in Toastmasters to help others. Mm -hmm. And that's true to me and I think Sandra too. Can you talk some about that, how you help others now 
and how you started out wanting to help yourself and also the power of the networking and some of your close relationships you've developed in Toastmasters. Great question, Randall. Thank you for asking that. First, I'd like to also point in there, and he did make a point, how do you help others? Toastmasters actually has a mentorship program. When I first joined, I had a a more seasoned Toastmasters guide me, help me, gave me feedback. If I had questions about a speech, I could call them. They would give me absolute advice. I could take it or leave it. They would listen to me, and I, and I would voice my concern, and they would hear what I was having to say. So there's opportunities for you to be a mentor and for you to be a mentee. And you can go both ways with it. It's, it's a great program that way. The other thing about networking, as you all know, business is networking. It's getting proximity close to people. I've met so many different interesting people in Toastmasters, and I will tell you, most are professionals. Most of these people, they either have businesses, they have law degrees, we have doctors. All walks of life come to Toastmasters because sooner or later, they're required via their job of their business, they're asked to do things related to their business. So we just had a young woman join our club who's 23 years old. She's a financial advisor. And at work, they told her she needs to get better at doing presentations, and she had zero experience at it, which is pretty frightening when your boss is telling you, hey, you got to go out and do presentations. Well, in Toastmasters, there's an actual path called presentation mastery. So she has an opportunity now to bring in problems from work, or maybe she's got to do a presentation and she's not feeling secure, she can come to a Toastmasters meeting and do that presentation, and she'll have 20 people listening and be willing to suggest, you know, a few tricks here and there to make her a better communicator. So the networking, as we all know in business, will never hurt you, and it might open up other opportunities. Here I am today as a Toastmaster giving a speech To you guys, how did I wind up here? It's the magic of Toastmasters and Zoom meetings that I met Randall, then artists, and they're like, hey, come speak today. I I never thought in a million years I'd be here. This is one of the few opportunities that I get to go out and do public speaking. What do I know? I'm a musician. Here I am today speaking to all of you because I'm, I'm working on mastering the art of speaking in front of a crowd and not being nervous about it and hopefully communicating effective way. Am I communicating well? Yes, you Okay, are. good. Any more questions? Any other questions? Raise your hand and I can bring in the microphone. Oh, one more. Got a question. Oop. Okay, coming on over. Keep your hand up. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, you had mentioned about there were several different paths that individuals could choose to develop their skills in. Are you limited to just one of those? Could you work on multiple different uh, paths at once? Great, great question. There are 11 paths. If you buy your membership in the Toastmaster, the first path is covered for you. And I believe that my first path, I want to say, something with leadership. I took the assessment, and they said, this is good. And I thought, okay, I had no idea what I'm doing, so I'm going to go for it. And then about six months into my membership, they, they brought in another path called engaging humor. 
And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So in order to do another path, I had to spend 20 bucks to do a path. Everything is virtual too. So all of the resources that you need to do that, everything is totally accessible. So you can do multiple paths. There's five levels to each path. So I finished my one path, yoo-hoo, and I'm in the engaging humor path. I'm on level four, which I'm really excited about because then I'm going to finish that path. And I'm in another path right now. Oh, and by the way, Toastmasters Life acronyms, if you finish two full paths, now remember, I've been in this since 2017, so I've only finished one path. But when you finish two paths, you are giving the acronym the DTM, which is the Distinguished Toastmaster. I don't know what that means. All I know is that that's what DTM means. And they feel that if if you've successfully have finished two paths, you're, you're doing pretty well with your speaking. I think I'm doing pretty well. Do I sound okay? Aside from my East Coast accent that I know, that I, know I still have after many years. Any more questions? One more. Randall's got another one. Oh, Randall's got another one. All, All right. right. Here I come, Randall. <clears throat> I'll elaborate on one point about the membership fees because, look, we all took a plane flight out here to get here, right? Mm -hmm. I I got my ticket through American Airlines. I started at 200 bucks. I was excited. What had happened? Incidentals, add this, add this, add this, you know, just to get your flight. Well, 400 bucks when I'm done. Toastmasters is not like that. I know we live in this world where you sign a membership form and all of a sudden you're bombarded by extra fees. As Sandra indicated, so it's $45 for a six-month membership. You renew every six months. On top of that, the only fees you would face is club dues. Some have it, some don't. Usually it's $2 per month club dues. Not a lot of money. The last thing you have to pay, your first path, educational path online is free, like Sandra said. After that, each of those other paths cost you $20. I like to say it this way, for about... 80 bucks every six months, you know, or something like that. Probably not even that. 70 bucks every six months. When you break that down, 70 divided by six, pretty nominal fee for what you get. Thanks, Randall. So in essence, Toastmasters is cheaper than therapy. Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. It's cheaper than therapy. Any more questions? I have a question. Um, um, this is Artis. Yeah, go ahead, um, Artis. Oh, your clubs, I've noticed, um, at least here, uh, where I live, um, it seems like most of them want you to come every week. Are there becoming more of them that uh, don't have such a, um, that, you know, that you have to come every week? In, in my club, good question, artist. In my club, we meet twice a month. It's the second and fourth Tuesday of every month for an hour and a half. And I tell people, people are like, oh, it's such a commitment. I'm like, it's three hours a month. Let's put that in perspective. And, and the value of what you get out of it is life-altering. Because if I said to you, go to Toastmasters for a year and see how your business increases, would you be willing to put the time and the investment into it? It's like, what's the payoff? The payoff is you're probably going to be a better business person. That's the big payoff because you're going to know how to talk to your customers more. Don't you wonder how, why are some people more successful than others and you're all doing the same business? It's because maybe they have a, be- maybe they have a better ability to communicate with their clients. 
And if you need to work on that, Toastmasters is a safe space to do it. Nobody's going to boo you off the stage. Nobody's going to tell you that you're a horrible speaker. If anything, they're going to be supportive and they're going to suggest things that will make you a better communicator. Who else had a question, Scott? Yeah. Was else? there another question on the floor? I think a lady over here. If you could raise your hand, I'll bring you the microphone. Oh, there she yep. Right. Oh, here we go. Okay, here it comes. Well, sad news from TDBS. Hi, good morning. Olivia from yeah. the state of Alaska um, Business Enterprise Program. So not only do I think that um, Toastmaster is a good skill to have, but it's kind of a two-point. You as the licensed vendor, as you just stated, you have got to sell your business within that site. The SLA oh, can only do so much. They can get the site for you. They can get the equipment. But you as the licensed vendor are the face of that business. If you cannot communicate, not only with your customers that are coming in daily, your vendors, the building site management, then you're building your, your service is going to fall. It's not going to be as um, profitable as it can be. And then also on the flip side of that coin, RSA is asking for um, active participation from the licensed vendors because a lot of licensed vendors feel that the SLA is kind of dictating what goes on. But having that those skills in your tool set are allowing you to articulate what you as a licensed vendor want the SLA to do, and then also you're getting a chance to offer that, that active participation. Great insight. Thanks for that. You. If you want to know more about it, Toastmasters is toastmasters.org. That's the international site. You can go there. You can type in a location where you're at to see if you have some in the area. And, you know, the advantages is that most of the clubs out there today are operating on Zoom. So feel free to take advantage of it. It's free to go for the first couple of meetings. And I would, and I would highly suggest that you visit several meetings. It's kind of like going to college. You're trying to find that, are, do you feel good in this space? Are the people in that club your kind of folks? If you're, if you're dealing, now Rand, Randall Crosby has a, a, an online meeting for visually impaired people. However, if you decide, hey, I want to go to a live meeting in my, in my neighborhood or in my town, when you get there, communicate to the people there that you, you have some visual impairment and they will make the adjustments in their meeting for you. So don't be afraid that you can't go to a club in person. I challenge all of you, step out of your comfort zone. If you want to grow in general, you have to do things sometimes that are a little uncomfortable. So good luck to you all. Have fun. Remember, if you leave Vegas with breaking even, you're all winners. <laughs> All right. Madam Cruise Director, I just have uh, one piece of housekeeping. Uh, my gentleman from California, my folks from Alaska, if you could meet me up here after our, after our next presenter, that would be great. Uh, so I'll turn it back to our Cruise Director. Okay. Um, do we have any, uh, does Artis have any housekeeping she needs to do? Um, do we have any, is there anything to do at this point? No, we're fine. Okay, very good. Um, okay, well, it looks like from the agenda that this is uh, the last presentation under my watch. Um, and uh, I, I very much under, uh, excuse me, appreciated the, uh, the most underrated part of the skills that we need, which is communication. Um, the next presenter is also something that is, uh, we all have to think about at one time or another, some of us sooner rather than later. Uh, the changes in Social Security and Medicare 
law, and uh, the person to do that is Miss Annie Walters. She is the public affairs specialist from Social Security Administration, and um, I'm assuming Miss Walters is in the house. She is here, and she's prepared to go. So with that, we'll turn the floor over to, to Amy. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So hopefully you're situated in a area where you can see some of the PowerPoint slides. If not, I guess you could shift around, but um, I'm going to be going through what the changes are for 2023. And before I do that, I wanted to thank Scott, thank all of this for inviting me. It's been a few years since I've been in person, so I am happy to be here and happy to share some information. So we're going to go over a little bit about retirement benefits, spousal benefits, but most importantly, um, disability for the Randolph Shepherd. So, um, okay, can we start from the beginning? All right, okay, so, sorry, go ahead and move on to the first slide. So with retirement benefits, right, there are some things that you have to re remember, okay? We pay into what we call FICA taxes. FICA stands for Federal Insurance Contribution, Contributions Act. It's 6.2% that go towards Social Security, 1.45% go towards your Medicare. If you are a self-employed individual, you need to double that because you don't have an employer that's matching it for you. So essentially, when you pay into FICA, that is what funds the Social Security retirement, the disability, and the survivors, and the Medicare program. So the whole point of this is that you have to have at least $1,640 of FICA taxable wages in order to earn one Social Security credit. You can earn four maximum in a year. So that's $6,560 for the year of 2023. Doesn't matter when you earn it whether you did it all in one month or it took you a whole year to earn that 6560 you get four full credits you have to have 40 credits okay once you have 40 credits and then you become the age of 62 you will be eligible for some type of retirement benefits through social security if you're not age 62 you got to wait in that time period again this is based on your own benefits on your own record for your own retirement so we're going to move on to the next slide now that you know you got to have 40 credits and be age 62. The year that you were born dictates when your full retirement age will be. Full retirement age is when you can receive 100% of your Social Security benefits. Anytime sooner than that, you can take it. However, your benefits will be reduced for every month that you are early. So in this particular chart, it shows you if you were born in 1960 or later, your full retirement age will be at 67. If you took it at age 62, your benefits will be reduced by 30%. If you took it as a spouse, it'll be 35% reduction. So the whole point of this chart is to let you know that this law became in effect well over 20 years ago, and some people still think that the full retirement age is set at 65 years old. So another example would be 1957. If your year of birth is in, then 66 and 6 months would dictate your full retirement age. Anything sooner than that, you will be subject to a limitation, but 62 is the absolute earliest. And you'll notice the reductions is slightly lower at 26.67% when you take it at 62. And if you took it as a spouse, it's 31.67. 
All right, we can move on to the next slide. And you welcome to work while you're collecting your Social Security retirement benefits. However, there's a limitation of how much you can earn. So right now in the year of 2023, you can't earn more than $21,240 a year and still collect your Social Security retirement benefits. If you happen to go over that allowable amount, for every $2 you go over, we'll just decrease it by a dollar. So the law gets a little bit more lenient as you approach your full retirement age, but you haven't quite reached that yet. So for an example, let's say you find out your full retirement age is in October of 2023. All we're saying is that from January to September, you're allowed to earn $56,520 for the year without your Social Security retirements being affected and still collect your payments. However, if you happen to go over then it's for every $3 you go over, a dollar will be decreased from your Social Security benefits. So the magical age to reach basically is your full retirement age. Once you reach that age, the law says that, look, you can stop work, you can continue to work, do whatever you want. There's absolutely no limitations at all whatsoever. We're going to move on to the next slide. And... I'm just basically touching up on some of the information. You probably heard it before, so we're not going to go into too much detail, but here's the difference between the spouse that's living and a surviving spouse in terms of how we calculate benefits. When we're talking about your spouse, um, they too have to wait until they're 62 years old all across the board in order to qualify. But for a surviving spouse, if you happen to be a widow or widower, you can apply for benefits as early as age 60. If you happen to be a disabled widow or widower, you can apply as early as 50. That's five zero. In terms of the maximum benefits, when we use a formula, a spouse can receive no more than 50% of the unreduced benefits. So no matter how we calculate it, and that's only if you're at full retirement age. If the person's younger, absolutely the benefits will be less than 50%, but 50% is the maximum. Versus the survivor, when they apply at 60 years old, the formula is calculated at 71.5%. By the time they reach the full retirement age, you can receive 100% of the benefits, all right? So once you elect a benefit, right, you are reduced, you're going to be reduced for a lifetime. It doesn't get higher just because you get older. You lock it in, that means you get to receive it early. However, you have to take into consideration that that is going to be your benefit for a lifetime. Obviously, there are cost of living adjustments and increases, and you have to take all that into consideration when you decide when you want to retire. Next slide, please. Understand that Social Security benefits are taxable. Now, this is an IRS tax law, right? It's not something we came up with, but Publication 554 indicates that this is how you would look at your income and how it would be taxed. So they tell, IRS says that you need to look at your adjusted gross income, add your non-taxable interest plus half of your Social Security benefits. That is considered what they called combined income. Then on the next slide, it's going to show you when you plug it into this, let's say we're going to take the middle one for an example. If you happen to be filing for a joint return between you and your spouse, if you have combined income between thirty-two dollars and $44,000, then you have to pay up to 50%, I'm sorry, up to 50% of your benefits will be subject to taxes. So in general, IRS tells us that no one will be paying for more than um, up to 85% of their Social Security benefits will be subject to taxes. 
okay? So it just kind of depends on where you fall under, but understand that taxes does exist when even after you stop working and after you're drawing benefits or during when you're drawing benefits. Let's move on to the next slide. All right, so I kind of like summarized your retirement benefits and if you're already on social security disability benefits and you're on it and then you're like, oh, I'm about to reach my full retirement age, all it does is that it just kind of rolls you over to your retirement. You know, you're, even though you're disabled, okay, we just label you as a retiree, your amount does not change at all whatsoever. That's if you're on disability and you're just rolling over to your retirement. So we're gonna move on and talk about uh, Social Security and SSI disability. So the prior slide that, I, that we had up kind of shows you the difference between the differences. So there is Social Security disability insurance, money that you paid into taxes for, the FICA taxes that we talked about, money that you actually earned, right, the 6.2%, versus what we call the SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, is another disability program that we have, but it's meant for low-income, low-resource individuals who may not have paid enough into Social Security disability to qualify for that. If you were to be eligible for Social Security disability, you will get health insurance, and it's through Medicare. It's a red, white, and blue card, and it is a federal benefit. Versus for SSI, it's a um, program that's offered through your state. So Medicaid is through your state. You don't get Medicare through SSI, all right? So that, that's the difference we need to, between those two programs. One is actually earned, and the other one is more, you could think about it like a welfare program that we have, essentially. So moving along, we're gonna talk more in depth about Medicare. When would you actually be eligible to apply? And you guys are probably familiar with this. Age 65 is the most common, and um, if you did not wait until 65 years old, maybe you had a disability on your, and you're on Social Security at this point in time. So on your 25th month, Medicare actually kicks in. Aside from that, we have a terrible disease that's called amniotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So if you have ALS, um, you're also eligible to receive Medicare. Another, uh, Illness is a kidney failure. If you're going through dialysis uh, three times a week, then Medicare eligibility will exist. This is a very uncommon one, which is called environmental health hazard exposure. Let's say in an area there was an accident, um, people were subject to whatever asbestos or any whatever uh, disease, something that happened over there. So if that area is announced to be have a health hazard, you're welcome to visit Social Security and we'll see if you happen to qualify under those conditions. So this is the time periods where you will be eligible to get Medicare and there's no other time periods. So on to the next slide, it's going to show you that when you enroll into Medicare, the new rule and law says that when you used to apply for Medicare three months after your 65th birthday, you would have to have a grace month of three months before your Medicare Part B kicked in. With 2023, that all went away. So essentially, all we're saying is that anytime three months after your 65th birthday you apply, two to three months, your Medicare starts the following month that you enroll. So you're 65 and three months in November, you enroll in November, it doesn't start until December versus having to wait the three-month grace period that we have in the past, all right? 
So that's the new change in 2023 regarding Medicare benefits at this point in time. Let's go ahead and move on to the next slide to see what else do we have. All right. Some of you guys might be concerned about your Medicare Part B premiums. It's currently set at $164.90, actually cheaper than last year. It went down. Cost of living increase went up. We made sure to bring down Medicare costs. So it kind of brought you to the level and hopefully kept up a little bit with inflation. Some people either draw from 401ks, sometimes they sell their homes, or maybe you got an inheritance. Doesn't matter when that happens, as long as you're on Medicare, that unfortunately bumps up your income. IRS is looking at that. So they give us a number and tell us like, hey, this person's income has gone up. So if you look at your adjusted gross income plus your tax exempt interest, that equates to what we call the modified adjusted gross income. So you sold a house, you got that money proceeds and you invested in something else or maybe you paid bills with it. Unfortunately, we don't look at that, right? We just see that income coming in and that's what IRS sees and that's gonna bump up your Part B. So for an example, if you happen to be an individual, your modified adjusted, adjusted gross income was above 153,000 but up to 183,000. So if you're in that bracket, not only do you have to pay $164.90, you need to add another $263.70 on a monthly basis, and that's for the entire year, okay? Un unless next year you continue to receive inheritances, um, take out 401ks, or maybe uh, whatever it is that causes your income to increase, that's the only time your Medicare Part B is gonna be more than the standard premium of $164.90. And let's move on a little bit more, but your Part D, you need to add another $50.70. So sometimes you might be in the situation, this is the only time you'll see your Medicare Part B premium exceed a little bit for that particular year. Hopefully it doesn't continue, but I guess you can look at it this way. You're probably doing great and doing well if you happen to be subject to this bracket. Let's go ahead and move on. So Medicare can be slightly complicated sometimes and you're looking at it and we can enroll you. That is Social Security can enroll you into Medicare Part A, which is for your hospital insurance. Your Medicare Part B is for your doctor's visits and your doctor checkups, all right? So that was that $164 that you're paying for. Your Part A, as long as you have your 40 credits that we're talking about, you're going to be eligible for Medicare for free. So the Part A is covered for. So you only can enroll in Medicare Part A and Part B through Social Security, but there are so many different parts aside from that, right? How do you get your drug plans with Medicare Part D? How do you get your subsidy plans? And how do you get your Medigap plans? How do you get your dental plan, your vision plans, all that great stuff? So there's a bundle plan that's out there called Medicare Part C, and some people find that lower out-of-pocket costs may be cheaper for them, so they decide to go through that route. Again, A and B is with Social Security. We don't enroll you into anything else or discuss any plans. We're not insurance agents, and so this is where this number comes in really handy for you. The state health insurance program, this is strictly for Nevada. Um, if you're from a different state, you do have a state program. You just gotta Google it, okay? And then make sure you find the one that's through the government agency. Um, they have different names for them. Some in California, I think they call it the CHIP program, California Health Insurance Program. So if you're in a different uh, state, please look for that. This is the 1-800-307-4444 for the state of Nevada if you are trying to figure out 
what other plans do I need aside from Medicare Part A and Part B so that I can be covered and not have to pay a lot of out-of-pocket costs? In general, uh, the, Center for Medicaid and the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services says that you're covered for 80% of your services, 20% actually comes out of your pocket. And so that's why you wanna make sure that you have other plans that might be able to cover that 20% cost instead of having it come out of your pocket. It could be quite expensive. And so this is a government agency. They are unbiased. Uh, they will offer you unbiased advice. They don't work for just one company or anything like that. So whatever best fits you, they'll go ahead and advise on it. Maybe you have income issues. Maybe you have um, health issues that you're really concerned with and you have to have this type of medication. Only specific health insurances will cover you. So you want to be very specific when you talk to SHIP so they can pull out those programs for you. Let's go ahead and move along to see what we have. All right, um, so earlier I did break this down for you. I, I must have put it in a terrible order, but basically I talked about how you have to pay into FICA taxes, and when you do, that money that you earn, if you were to fall and have a disability, then that Social Security Disability Program will be there for you, especially if you have enough credits. The SSI, once again, is something that you did not earn. You have to have low income, low resources in order to qualify for this low income program. Um, both programs are available for children as well. One of them is earned by the parent. The other one is just low income, essentially. So that, that was just another brief overview of um, Social Security and SSI payments. Let's go ahead and move along. All right, um, under the disability program, hopefully you guys know about what we call substantial gainful activity. So if you are working um, substantial gainful in this particular situation, it's $1,470 for the year of 2023 for a non-blind individual, but then the SGA for a blind individual is set at $22,460, all right? So if you're earning over that allowable amount, you cannot apply for Social Security Disability Insurance. However, if you're already on disability benefits, that's a completely different story. We still use SGA to actually de uh, determine whether you're going, your benefits are going to be ongoing or not. But that's what SGA means. We have to use some type of guide to ensure whether you can either come onto disability or continue on disability benefits with Social Security insurance. Let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. All right, the quickest way to apply for benefits, if you're wondering if how to apply for your retirement, your disability, or Medicare, maybe you're on none of these benefits right now, then online is the quickest way. Uh, it can take anywhere upwards of two months to obtain an appointment with the state of Nevada at this point in time in all three of our offices. So um, it's not like it doesn't exist, but it's just very, very tight at this point in time in terms of the amount of employees that we have to spread around all the offices. So very simple to read. Um, hopefully you'll be able to gather that information and apply online. If online is not an option for you, we will have a 1-800 number that you can call and I'll post that information up there in a little bit. Let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. This is um, the work incentives that we're going to go into detail. When people are on Social Security or SSI disability benefits, some people fear the ability to go back to work and then they might lose their benefits. There are quite a bit of 
work incentives that are available to the individual so they can have no fear of going back to work and they will not lose their health insurance benefits. So I'm actually gonna briefly go over some. I'm not gonna go too much into detail. And that's the reason why I wanna bring your attention to this red book. So this red book is literally a physical book. We used to be able to order it and um, hand it out to you guys. Uh, but it's also available online. It's at so ssa.gov forward slash redbook, and it goes over every single work incentives that we have available when you decide that you want to return to work and how those incentives will be able to assist you and what deductions that you can take uh, without fear of losing your benefits. So that's the red book. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Um, can we space one more? Because I don't see the... Yeah, sorry about that. Go ahead and click all the way through until we get all this information on there. So some of the work incentives for the Social Security Disability Insurance is that you do have a nine-month trial work period. The trial really just says that, hey, we're trying for you to go back to work. Even if you earn $10,000 a month, because you're over $1,050, we're just counting it as one trial work month. And you have nine of these to work out. And the, while you're in your trial work month, you're getting your full Social Security payments. And we could click all the way through until all the items come up. Yeah. So if you finish your trial work period, you go into what we call the extended period of eligibility. And this is when we look at that substantial gainful amount that I talked about earlier. So at 36 months, it's $2,460 for a blind individual, $1,470 for a non-blind individual. So while you're in your extended period of eligibility, okay, that means that for any time period that you did earn over that, your benefits will be stopped for that particular month. Once you stop earning that, then your benefits will continue essentially. This goes on for the next 36 months, depending on your ability to uh, earn over that allowable amount. Let's say you were successful. Your, your payments for Social Security disability stopped. Within a 60-month period, if the same condition recurs and that then you are not able to go back to work any longer. There's this thing called an expedited reinstatement. We will go ahead and pay you six months worth of payment while we're making another decision on your case again. So even though you're reapplying in a sense, we do allow you to have payments in the meantime. So that's the expedited reinstatement that you may qualify for. And again, these are all these work incentives that we have. Let's go ahead and move on. and it will click all the way through. This is uh, some things that we talked about, right? There's the uh, income-related, uh, impairment-related work expenses, unsuccessful work attempts, subsidies, and ticket to work. So the whole point of these is that, let's say you have um, a coach that, re that you require in order to do the job that you do. That could be an expense that we take into consideration and say, hey, this is part of your impairment-related work expense. We need to sort of deduct that from your gross income in order to get the true value of what we're calculating. The whole point of that is to bring your gross dollar amount down to figure out, are you still over substantial gainful? And if you're truly not, that's the reason why your payments will continue. Same thing like unsuccessful work attempt. You try to go back to work for six months, you're not successful. We may excuse those months and say, look, you, you, you tried it, it didn't work out. Let's go ahead and excuse that. Subsidies and a ticket to work. So we'll go ahead and move on with the next couple of slides to see what else. 
So the Ticket to Work program, again, this is voluntary for anybody who's age 18 up until the time period of um, your full retirement age, you can go to this Ticket to Work program. Again, they will teach you how to write resumes if you need to. Um, they will figure out what job best fits your condition um, if you're able to do that particular position. So there's an employment network that's in there. Uh, that employment network is very supportive because they know that they're hiring disabled individuals, regardless of your disability, and um, they'll work with the individual to make sure that, hey, I think this position is going to best fit you, or this employer is going to be best fit you. So check them out, and it's called the Ticket to Work, or you can go to choosework.ssa.gov to learn more about the Ticket to Work program to see what may fit you best. All right, uh, let's go ahead and click through that. And I believe this one, so we're gonna move along to the SSI portion of it, right? This was the low in income program that we talked about. There are also incentives under that program because there are two separate programs. The incentives are completely different. The way we count income for SSI is that we never count the first $65 and then we have another $20 exclusion and then half of that income then it will be counted towards your SSI. Uh, so there's the plan to achieve self-support. We will allow you to keep some of the money and make sure that you get to keep your SSI even though you've earned over the substantial gainful amount so that you can be successful in achieving to opening up a business or becoming a caseworker or whatever that may be. You have to have a plan so then we put it into effect with the approval of Social Security. Let's go ahead and move on to see whether work incentives. So same thing, impairment work-related expenses. So all we're saying is that there's quite a bit of incentives that are out there for you guys, okay? You're just listing a few so you can kind of get an idea of what to expect so you can uh, take advantage of it without your benefits being affected. Let's move on to that. So the Randolph Shepherds Act, I'm gonna read some of the information to kind of tell you how it kind of came about. I'm pretty sure you guys are aware of it, but let's go ahead and go over a general overview of the Randolph Shepherds Act according to what Social Security knows. Let's move on to the next slide here. So the whole point is that Congress enacted this law to make sure that the opportunities were offered for trained and licensed blind persons to operate facilities, and it started out with just federal properties. So whether they're receiving income from vending machines located on the same property and services that may not be necessarily rendered by that individual or maintained by that individual. So it was enacted by Congress, and let's move on to see what else did the act do. Uh, it could have been for vending facilities in cafeterias, could have been at snack bars, or automatic vending machines. And this particular one in Nevada, um, I believe there's one in the courthouse. There's a cafeteria in the courthouse that we have right now. Let's go ahead and move on. So the law enacted was, again, only on federal properties, and now it's included counties, municipal, and private locations. So it's spread out, and you guys probably have experienced it or know that you can have locations um, or operate your business in those particular areas as well. All right, incurred business expenses. During the course of your business, if you are self-employed, you're going to incur expenses, okay? So whether it's paid by yourself or by somebody else, we actually would deduct this off of your gross income so we could try to find a true value of what's actually countable. This is very important because it dictates like 
Is your income over substantial gainful amount? Because that determines whether we're going to continue your benefits or we stop the benefits temporarily for that particular month. So incurred expenses, and what else do we have on the next slides? Unincurred business expense. So the unincurred business expense is pretty interesting, right? We deduct expenses, again, for um, expenses that you may not necessarily have paid for yourself at all whatsoever. Maybe a friend is working for you for free, right? And you're not paying them at all. The fact is that that help is there, and that dictates in order for them to, for you to gain all that income, they had to help you, but you didn't have to pay them for it. So now we have to say, with that help that you receive, we need to deduct it out of your gross income to find the true value of what you actually earned. It takes nothing away from you at all whatsoever. It's just sort of an incentive of how we truly calculate what you earned so we can determine once again whether your payments shall continue. So here are some important things to remember, okay? Um, so, I guess the, the number one was that we said that the, the agency could be paying for your rent, could be paying for your stocks, or repair equipment. So you're not paying for any of this stuff, but these are unincurred business expense that happens during this time period. We can actually deduct that out to make sure that we know the true value. So it must be an item that IRS would allow for a legitimate business expense for it to be paid for, and it cannot be paid for by you, it has to be paid for by somebody else. So that's an unincurred business expense that we're able to write off for you in a sense. And this is again, how Social Security calculates benefits. It's not specifically done by IRS in any way whatsoever. We just want you to know how we calculate the, the benefit amount. Let's move on to the next one, and I will have an example for you, okay? We do not count the income that the blind self-employed uh, individual receive under the act from vending machines located on the same property but not serviced and operated or maintained by the blind vendor as a self-employment income for SGA purposes. The reason why is because the machine is standalone. Um, anybody can use that and you're not operating it per se, so we will not be counting it towards your income. So if it generates thousands of dollars every month, that's great, you know, it's just not counted towards that you physically earn that money yourself. Let's go ahead and move on. Okay, so the whole point of how we calculate this stuff is that we look at all your gross income and then we start deducting it from that point on whether you have unincurred business expenses, incurred business expenses. Let's go ahead and move on to see an example. In your self-employment income, you have $28,000. That $28,000 is over the blind substantial gainful amount. However, there's rent and there's spaces and equipments that you had, not you necessarily had to pay for. It was just an unincurred business expense. Even though it didn't come out of your pocket, we can still deduct $18,000 that was incurred. So essentially, all we're saying is that your income is really only $10,000, which is below the substantial gainful amount. Ergo, your payments will continue. All right, so that was one example that we have. For SSI, unfortunately, we do not have such a thing as unincurred business expense. So if you are on SSI benefits, we will not be doing the same calculation. 
That brings us to the finale of my presentation regarding retirement benefits onto Social Security disability. So if you want to learn more or watch any videos that we have, we have YouTube, Intuit, Twitter, so you can know the latest and greatest of some of the rules and laws that might have changed. Um, go ahead and move on. Let me see if I talk about our Social Security online. I do. So in order for you to figure out how much money you've paid into FICA taxes or your Medicare taxable income, you should log on to what we call your Social Security account. Let's go ahead and move on to see how we would do that. Yeah, you can log on to ssa.gov. There's this thing called login.gov or id.me for you to get on. Once you get on, you can do quite a few things. So I'm gonna list a couple of things that you can do once you get onto your account aside from getting your FICA taxable uh, amounts. Let's move to the next slide. If you already have benefits, you can request for a placement social security card that became in effect about a year and a half ago with the state of Nevada. You can report your wages to social security. So if you're still um, working on a monthly basis, even though you're self-employed, it might take you a year to report that income. You can always provide us with your estimates online. Um, you can get change your address, direct deposit, get your Medicare card, get your 1099s for your tax purposes. That's if you're on benefits. This next slide talks about when people don't have benefits, you can still request for a card, okay? You can appeal a case if you have a case pending. You can review your earnings, try to get your spousal benefits online, get all these estimates essentially, okay? Once again, you can see all your Social Security and Med Medicare taxes that you've paid for. All right. Once again, online is probably the quickest and fastest way to apply for your benefits. Or this is the 1-800 number that I'm talking about. Whether you have questions, concerns, or just want to know about your benefits, you're, you're welcome to call 1-800-772-5000. One, two, one, three. That's our teleservice centers, and this is nationwide. Usually, you are connected with your local area. However, if it does get too busy, you might get somebody from California picking up the phone, okay? So just to kind of give you a sense, if you happen to try to file for survivor's benefits or child's benefits, this cannot be done online. You will have to set up an appointment with us one way or another, and we'll get you um, either in the office or over the phone. All right? And so the whole point of this session is that we wanted to be able to go over some questions and answers with you. Is there, we're gonna open it up right now, and is Scott's going to just come around and see, or I can too as well. I yeah. got it, I got it. <laughs> you got it? Okay, so any questions regarding your retirement? Yeah, there's one over here, Scott. Okay. No. Keep your hand up for me. Somebody over here? Yep, okay, there we go, thank you. Hi, good morning. I would like to know why local social security offices do not know about countable income. They are not informed. Is there a reason for that? I think it could be the possibility that they don't come in contact with that on a more common basis. So sometimes it is specialized in the field offices essentially. So if they come across it like maybe once or twice a year, then those are very specialized cases. 
usually only technical experts are more aware of it, okay? However, everybody does get the same training. You should be at least aware about this. If that not, we should point them to the possible training that's available, but it doesn't happen as often. Yeah, so it's the lack of um, services that we're providing. That's the reason why it's not an everyday thing for us, okay? So thank you for that question. But if you happen to not get the services that you need, please do ask for a technical expert. We will absolutely look up policies for you if you feel that your case was not applied correctly. All right, any other questions? I can bring you the mic. We have a question over there, gentleman in the suit. Hand up, okay, there we go. If I am drawing SSDI, um, you said when I turn 67, I'm automatically enrolled in Social Security retirement, so I don't have to do anything. But can I delay enrolling in Social Security retirement until a later age, like age 70, to allow my retirement benefit to increase? That is a very good question. Thank you, sir. All right. Any other questions? I have one. Go ahead, it's Linda. Linda. Um, it's kind of off what the gentleman asked previously. Um, but, um, Ms. Walters, I think you mentioned uh, about 2016. Did you, uh, could you repeat what you said about 2016? I, my phone has been cutting out. Is that if you applied before that or if your age is something after that? I didn't catch it. If you're 62 after January 2nd, 2016. Okay. Then that law would And that's when they, everything rolls over automatically, regardless to when you had applied for benefits. No. So with that date that I mentioned, so if you're 62 after that date, if you are eligible to receive a payment, let's say you decided to choose retirement benefits, once you apply for that, you've applied for every benefits that you're currently eligible for. So if you're eligible for a spousal payments, then you would have to get onto that benefit as well. You wouldn't have the choice to say, I want to wait um, and only collect my spousal benefits and then jump onto my retirement benefits later. But so, if you're already drawing, it's kind of along the same lines as what the gentleman asked. Um, if you're already drawing, but you turn 62 after 2016, are you automatically going to be applied or does it require a different type of application? He asked two separate questions, completely different, and they weren't really correlated with each other. So if you're actively on benefits, right, on disability yes, benefits, if you're on disability yes, benefits, you will automatically be switched over to retirement benefits at your full retirement age, regardless of when you were born. So that's if you're actively on, you're receiving 100% of your disability. Once you've reached your full retirement age, all we're saying is that we're, we're switching you from a disabled individual to a retiree. The amount does not change because you already maxed out on your benefit amount. His other... Okay. Yeah, so that, that was that. But he was saying that, what if I didn't want my retirement benefits and I wanted to stop and then just wait until my... Uh, for delayed retirement. 70, I think he said. For delayed retirement credits, essentially. 
So when we think about it, you're essentially saying, I want to stop my disability. I'm not going to get any more payments from there, okay? And then you would delay your retirement and say, I want to jump on at a later period of time to get a higher payment. Is that allowable? So that was really his question. Okay, and is there any way, Scott, when that answer comes through, can that be posted somewhere? Because um, I, I sort of had that question as well. If um, Annie gives the response to that, I can add it to an article I'm using, you know, per uh, material uh, for the next Fenderscope magazine. Sounds great. And we'll provide a response to artists um, sooner than that, obviously, before it gets posted. So she can um, provide that information for you guys as well. She's great at forwarding the information for us. Thank you very much for clarifying. I apologize for being vague. Oh, don't be. Thank you, artists. I already just gave her a task without asking. <laughs> okay. All right. We have a question here. Oh, okay. This is a very good question. So Social Security, once uh, in terms of disability, right, you either you're disabled or you're not. There's no variations of 1% to 90%, whatever that is. Either you're on benefits or you're not. That's approved or not approved. However, let's say you got approved for uh, a, a disability that is not necessarily blind to begin with, okay? That's the only time period that we would actually switch you from one to the other. Let's say you developed a disability that happens to be a blindness. Blindness is a completely different thing. It pays you... Uh, possibly at a higher rate. It gives you different insured status. It allows you to have different incentives. So that's the reason why we would switch you over and do what we call a medical review in order for us to put you into a statutory blindness uh, category if you were never approved for blindness to begin with. But if it's just regular disability and you're saying, look, I got into a car accident, you know, 10 years later, I'm still on disability, that won't change the actual rates for an individual but blindness can possibly change that, okay? And that's the only category that will allow that to change. But you have to have a medical review, and it's something that you would have to volunteer to tell us. We wouldn't know otherwise. Okay. We got a, there's a question down this end of the floor. Oh, somebody have a mic? Okay, oh, I see hands up here. Yeah. Okay, here I come. Um, I just wanted to say, I don't know if, for the gentleman that wanted to delay his Social Security, but when, so I was on SSDI, and when I became, I can't remember, but I was supposed to be 65 or 67. After that, I was still working, and Social Security just increased my benefit. They looked at my earnings, and then periodically, they just increased my benefits. So everything still counts, and you actually... You know, I've heard that when you're working at 67, that's when you're supposed to make the most money to get a better benefit, so. That's a good general statement. So if you're actively working, remember, because I said that you can retire, right, and still actively work and still get your Social Security payments, you're still going to be taxed. As you continue to be taxed, we're going to recalculate your benefit to see if that's going to increase it or not. I didn't got, go into the formula, but the whole point is that we choose the highest 35 years of your earnings. If you happen to work and those earnings are higher than your prior years, 
that's the reason why you'll see an increase on your Social Security payments because you have higher earnings than any prior years that you had. So we always, always recalculate every year in January to ensure that any work you've done is taken into consideration, especially if it's higher. So that's why you're um, benefiting from that as well. So that's great. Hi, I'm Heather from Alaska, and I have SS, well, I have a disability, but when I first applied, I was visually impaired. Now I have been classified as legally blind. So I went to the um, Social Security office and wanted to change it to legally blind, and they didn't know what I was talking about. We only have one category, and it's called statutory blindness. So if you were announced that from the beginning, that means you already have always been in that category. Um, there's no such thing as visually impaired versus a blind individual. Like, there's only one category for that. So if you've ever been approved for blindness, you've always been in that category. You've always received either the higher amount or been able to get those incentives at a higher rate. Do you recall that? If not, no. you're welcome to contact Social Security and verify whether, you're, uh, whether your category indicates that you're a statutory blind individual or not. Okay. So if they tell you that you are, there, there's no really other categories to fit into. Okay? okay. There's only one. Okay? Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. From Alaska. Okay. I think it's, it's It sounds like we have... Oh, um, we got one more over here. Okay. Here we go. Um, you said that the only time that Medicare goes up in um, is more than that $164 is if you've had some sort of a windfall, whether it's an inheritance or whatever, the sale of a house. I have paid twice what most people pay in Medicare, and they told me the reason was because when I was um, at home raising children, my husband had, my then husband had um, state insurance, insurance from the state um, pool. That's where he worked for New Jersey. And um, so I didn't need Medicare. And I told them why, you know, I wasn't taking it when I went on disability. And, um, and I'm still to this day, that was 32 years ago, uh -huh. <laughs> paying twice what everybody else pays. Yeah. So what you're, what you're experiencing is called penalties. You were supposed to apply for Medicare when you were supposed to, um, because you didn't, for whatever reason that could be, you suffer those penalties. So those penalties never go away. So if you were supposed to apply when you lost your Medicare coverage or when you became eligible and you waited that extra two years, then that would be a 20% penalty because you waited. So it's 10% for every year. And those penalties are lifetime and they never go away. Yeah. So it's a very stiff penalty. So if you think in the short run, I got insurance through my husband. He's working part-time. Um, and it, it was a third party, and it wasn't through an employer or something. And if you didn't quite fit within the rules or regulations and you think you're saving money by not enrolling into Medicare, then when you go into enroll into Medicare, we ask you for the proofs, and you're not able to supply it. This is when we implement those um, penalties. And unfortunately, you happen to be that individual in that situation. Yeah, so lifetime. Yeah. We have a question. I, I thought I heard somebody on virtual. Did you want it to come on and ask a yes. question? Yeah, go ahead. 
Yes, my name is Kevin Williams, and I have a question. Do Social Security work closely with uh, TurboTax Intuitive as far as the software where you can enter your unincurred expense and incurred expense because I use the software and uh, I always have to go to someone to input that information. Uh, there's nowhere in the software where it would show uh, where you would put the uh, unincurred expense if you have it as a small business. Is that a question or a statement? That's a question. Do, do Social Security work with TurboTax uh, no. or Intuit? No, we don't work with any work. tax agencies at all. So we are a standalone federal agency and uh, taxes are calculated completely different than what I just talked about with the unincurred business expense and incurred expenses. So this is how we calculate it. However, right. IRS calculates it or whatever program that allows you to put in those numbers, if it was counted there, you definitely want to notify Social Security that it was already removed so, so that we don't double count that essentially or double remove that from your actual expenses as well. So just be careful with that, okay? If you're going to use those programs. You just have to disclose to us that you already excluded all those expenses out. Okay, thank you. You're Appreciate welcome. Oh, I've got a question here on the floor. Hello, thank you for being here. Um, a question for you, if you know not, I'm not sure, but it seems that every time, um, as a blind person, the VR opens my case for one reason or another following that there seems to be a determination, a redetermination by Social Security on my income and, you know, how that's all figured out. Do state agencies contact Social Security or is that, I mean, how is that triggered or is it just random? It's not necessarily random. It's actually your responsibility to report your wages, right? Once you report those wages, that's what actually prompts the actual review itself, so we can actually determine whether your payments should continue. No state agencies contact us. Even if you were working for a federal government, they wouldn't submit this information to us per se. It just so happens to pop up on your IRS tax information. IRS does share those earnings with us, and that's the only time we know that you actually have some type of earnings, and it could be years before we even uh, realize that it's on your record. So. It prompts reviews and it sometimes, you know, goes back for years because you never told us about it. Um, but you should try to get a review at least once a year on your work, not your medical, but on your work. Um, insist on it if that's the case so that you can see like where you stand in terms of your work, especially if you think you've earned over the substantial gainful amount. You looked at all your unincurred um, business expenses and business expenses, and you did a calculation yourself, and you're like, mm, I think I'm going to be over. You absolutely want to report it, e even if you're under, for that matter, okay? Yeah, we want to make sure that we calculate that information accordingly for you. You get a formal decision, and then you'll know you'll, you'll be safe and can continue on your disability. Thank you for those great questions. We're going to see if there's any more hands for questions about retirement, disability, Medicare. Yes, Rex. Um, what is the typical time when the uh, application oh, no, no, no. person applies for a disability? 
and the story is that we continue to hear medical review, medical review. So is it like, would it be a year, two years? Uh, I think that yours is a two-part question. So if you're talking about an initial disability you've never applied before and you apply, it could take anywhere from four to six months for initial decision. If you were to be disapproved, you go to the reconsideration level, which will take another four to six months. If you go from there to the hearing level, it can take up to one year. And you go from the hearing to the appeals council can take another year from there. So that's at the initial level of a disability with the appeals. If you're already on disability benefits and you're subject to a medical review, it could be a one-year review, three-year review, or a seven-year review. It really depends on your condition. So if you have a permanent condition that's not going to improve, we're probably going to push it out for seven years, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a medical review. It just so happens that if you happen to be chosen within the seven years, we're allowed to do it every seven years. So those are two separate answers for you, if that answers your question. Okay, well this is a person that applied on their, like on their parents' disability. Okay. And uh, the person is disabled their self. Okay. But they, you know, the only answer that they get is, you know, medical review. And it's been probably nine months. Yeah, so when I say four to six, that's typical at the initial level. So I don't know what level that person would be in at this point in time. If they have appealed reconsideration, again, that's another added six months on top of that. So it would be cumulative of six, six plus another one year and, a, and another year at the appeals council. But I cannot, and again, these are just averages that I'm talking about. If the state that you're referring to happens to have a high amount of disability that is, that is pending, then uh -huh. it might pen for nine months. And you're welcome to call the examiner to see where they are at and figure out, is there any documents that they're missing? And you're welcome to supply them with the evidence. But if they're just saying, nope, it's just a matter of manpower to get to the medical uh, information, that means they're looking through every single medical records that's submitted to verify whether this person qualifies for disability or not. So they, Literally, the examiners are, are reviewing every single page of these medical records, depending on how much record this person has requested. Okay, well, how do they reach out to uh, inquire about the uh, their medical process? So 1-800-772-1213 is our national number. Once you reach them, they could see where the case is at in terms of is it at the Disability Determination Services? and they should be able to supply the examiner's phone number. If they cannot supply the examiner's phone number, they can give you the local office phone number where the local office will search for the examiner's number. In all the paperwork that the person received, they have both those numbers. And if they cannot find it for themselves, you would have to contact the local office to do so. Okay, well thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, the clock is a moving on us, and um, the next thing to come is lunch. And I know everybody loves the word lunch. So, hey, well, I'm going to give an ending code. <clears throat> sure. And then we'll have a couple door prizes. <clears throat> um, the ending code is C for cat, three nine zero K for kitten. <laughs> 
Again, it's C390K. All right. Can, can we hold on just a second with the drawing? I know everybody will be ready, but I, I want to make sure we've thanked our guest today um, for all the great information she shared with us. Folks, can we please give her a hand? And... All right. Go ahead. Let's go ahead with the drawing. Okay. The first one is Norman Oda. And I believe he's in the room. Okay, the second one is Greg Riley. Greg Riley? Hey, we've got another one in the room. Great, super. Okay, thanks guys. All right, Madam Cruise Director, housekeeping note, and then I'm gonna turn the floor back over to you. So the good news for you all is lunch is already, I believe, being served across the way. Just on the other side of the wall here is lunch, and officially 12.15 is supposed to start, but they started uh, opening doors and stuff early, so uh, please join us on the other side. <laughs> 